crime in me. I've diagnosed some people. I think it's been pretty accurate. Definitely done my fair share of psychiatry work. I've prescribed a few pills, you know. Crime in me. responsible for the things that come out of our mouths. We are not experts, although we may claim to be, so don't take anything that we say too literally. We are not laughing at the crimes, we are laughing at each, each other. other. <laughs> uh, yes, we are on episode 17, I'm Odds, I go first. Welcome, Welcome to another episode of Criminy. Of Criminy. Oh. <laughs> We're your hosts. <laughs> Try again. Welcome. Look, we don't have time for this. <laughs> uh, welcome to another episode of Crimony. We're your hosts, Angela. And Matt. And thanks for joining us again. Episode 17. We've done it 17 weeks in a row. That's Woo-hoo! insane. That's surprising and wonderful. We've kept it together. <laughs> well... Barely, but barely. We <laughs> there have definitely have been times where I'm like, guess we're not posting this week because shit got bucked. Oh but yeah, for sure. I try, and yeah. Anyway, welcome, and we hope you enjoy another episode of this disturbing podcast. Yeah, buckle up. This one's gonna be a long one. Yeah, we did a shorty last week, and somehow we always end up doing about the same length. Even though unfortunately, even though we've we don't ever discuss the cases that we're going to talk about, somehow we always pick cases that are similar in one some weird way, and the length is usually the same. You just never know what you're getting into when you start researching. You're like, oh, this one's going to have so much information, and then you're like, oh great, like I have a page, like this sucks. Yeah. And then like to this one, I was like, okay, well this one's pretty like straightforward, whatever. And now it's like, oh, it's longer. And you can't oh. do the thing where like you know in in school in high school where you would like secretly double space but it would be like double like 2.5 spacing to make it look longer yeah but when you read it out loud it's the same length no matter how many spaces you have or change the period size <laughs> yeah. yeah just slightly make it a bit bigger by the time i was in high school they figured out all your tricks so they were like oh you guys you can't do this damn oh, yeah. sorry <laughs> Well, that was like when um, we would have to write out the uniform dress code if we didn't wear the proper uniform. And Mm -hmm. during my years, someone figured out, because originally it was just like, you have to handwrite it and turn it in. And then someone figured out that you could type it up. And so then they were passing, (laughs) they were passing around a floppy disk of the typed up dress code (laughs) so that you could just print it out yourself and not have to do it. But then they, they were like, they caught on to that and they were like, it has to be handwritten. What? That's ingenuity. They should have been proud. <laughs> also, then they just got rid of that and gave us detention. Oh, I had detention and had to write out the dress code. Oh, well, we didn't... I don't know what they did in detention because I never got it, so... Well, I only got it when I wasn't wearing the right uniform. The stupidest rule. It was so dumb. <laughs> yeah, but then by my like my freshman year, you could wear the red shirt instead of like the vest or the sweater, which made it easier because you just wear the red what? shirt all the time. To liturgy days? Yeah, I think it was that. 
Or you just keep a sweater. You just wear a sweater all the time. So if you're mm. caught off guard. Yeah. Nope. I don't know. I think they realized it was like fucking unreasonable. It's stupid. We're all like sleep deprived and stressed out all the time. And we have to remember what days to wear a sweater. Like what? Yeah. Okay. And you know, they're like, God only likes when you wear sweater vests and sweaters. If you don't, he's insulted. And, and he wants skirts. you to write out the uniform code. <laughs> <laughs> we will mail it to him when you're done. <laughs> we got a big stack going straight up to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy Catholic school. All right, I'm going to jump in. Okay. I got my information from Wikipedia, Murderpedia, some other website called NJ1015. Uh, ma, ma, da, ass. Okay, I got a lot of what? weird. Okay, look. <laughs> Archives.law.virginia.edu, the New York Times, and True Crime Cases blogspot. All right. Okay. I'm going to tell you the story of Joseph Callinger. Do you know who he is? Not. No, Not I don't Okay. Think so. Not by name. Okay. No. Joseph Callinger was born December 11th, 1935, and he was born with the name Joseph Lee Brenner III at Northern Liberties Hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to Joseph Lee Brenner Jr. and his wife, Judith Brenner. So far, so good. Mm -hmm. After his first year of life, he was put into a boarding home where he only saw his mother once a week and developed separation anxiety. After his first year? Yeah, I guess the parents (gasps) were having some issues and they couldn't really keep up with, you know, a child, so they put him in this... Kind of boarding boarding home thing where someone else would take care of him and then they would come by once a week. Yeah, no Uh, wonder he got separation anxiety. That's terrifying. Yeah, that's horrible. Um, And uh, in December 1937, he was placed in foster care after his father abandoned his mother. Joseph was then placed on the Catholic adoption list. Where he had to write out his uniform policy three (laughs) times. No, I'm just kidding. At the age of three. (laughs) At the age of three with his, with the fat crayons that they gave And they'd smack his little knuckles if he got a word wrong. (laughs) Basically. So, so far, so bad. He's two and he's placed up for adoption. Awful start. On October 15th, 1939, so he's four, he was adopted by Austrian immigrants Stephen and Anna Callinger. I'm not sure if his name is Stefan or Stephen. It's the PH Stephen, so it could be Stephen. Mm, it could go either way. Could go either way. This is how he ends up with the last name Callinger. Right. So, that makes that makes sense. You know. Yeah. <laughs> just wanted to make sure that was clear. Apparently, I don't know why I put that in there. <laughs> You're like this is important information. And he was abused by both his adoptive parents pretty Aww. severely. God. The Why punishment... would they even adopt him? Basically, they wanted a little worker. No. The punishments that Callinger endured included kneeling on jagged rocks, <gasps> being locked inside closets, oh. forced to consume his own excrement. What the fuck? Committing self-injury, being burned with irons, being whipped with belts and being starved. This is horrific. so far so good. <laughs> oh my god, what the fuck is wrong with these people? He's like a baby. Yeah. 
Not that that'd be okay at any age. That's <laughs> at least wait till he's 13. God. <laughs> Savages. No, this is horrible. It's horrible. It's, it gets worse. That's why, like, literally I was looking into it and I was like, oh, his actual, like, up and his, his whole childhood is super fucked up. And that doesn't even start his crimes, you know? So I was like, mm-hmm. oh, it's going to be really long after it's like seven mm. pages of just his childhood. Oh, my God. In 1941, Joseph hears the F word from some neighborhood kids. And oh, when he came home, he asked his father what it meant. And his father beat him with a leather strap. And his mother beat him with a wooden spoon. And he was grounded because- for a week. You couldn't be like, hey, that's not a good word. We don't use that in this house. No, they had to beat it out of him. Oh, my God. During the week that he was grounded, the beatings continued. He oh, was my never... God, for asking what a word meant? Yep. He was never told what the word meant or why he was being punished. Oh, my God. What the fuck? Two years later, September 16th, 1943, Joseph leaves the St. Mary's Hospital after surgery to repair a hernia um, that was supposedly caused by his father, Stephen Stefan. See, it was either caused by his father, Stephen, or it was caused because he was kicked in the groin by a girl at school a couple no, weeks before the surgery. It. And um, I'm sure his dad did it. Yeah, he had claimed that he didn't do anything to deserve it, but his parents punished him for being kicked in the groin. Oh, God, so they probably... Shortly after that incident, he stole a book of prayers from school and was punished by kneeling on sandpaper for an hour each night. Jesus Christ. I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So while he's in the hospital recovering from the hernia surgery, his parents tell him that the doctor also gave him surgery to keep his quote-unquote bird small and make it not work oh they use the word God. bird in the home to describe his penis no i got that <laughs> uh, yes they also told him that a demon was removed from his penis and now he would be free from sin why were these people allowed to adopt a child <laughs> what the actual fuck i it seems like <laughs> they don't really i don't know i mean it's it's early days. They don't really do much looking other than... This is why than... screening processes are so intense these days, because people like this are so fucked up. Yeah, but then you could just foster, and there is no... Scre- there's, like, barely any screening process, and then that's where a lot of the abuse happens now. I know. Anyway. Anyway. So now he thinks his little bird is mm-hmm. a demon, basically, you know. It's bad. Oh, God. That's healthy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um... His father was a shoe cobbler and had a shoe store. And that's Mm -hmm. basically why they wanted him. Period. They wanted him because they wanted to train a little. Tiny hands could cobble. Yeah, they wanted to train a little cobbler to help out with the work. Great. So he was forced to work in the shop. Um, But because of that, he became one of the best. He became the best cobbler in town. If not, like, the entire area, he was a well-known cobbler eventually when he was older. Wow. Like, pe- people would pay 
lot, you know, whatever he wanted because he was the best cobbler. So it was all worth it. It was all worth it. (laughs) All I'm saying is tell your child their bird is evil, beat them a bit, and they'll become fabulous cobblers. Awesome. Okay, Mm -hmm. on board. Let's do this. Okay, check, check. (laughs) God, that's so disgusting. That's so Uh, disgusting. And because of, obviously, because of his beatings and the way that he was treated and his cobbling, he made it his life goal to create the perfect shoe. He was, like, obsessed with creating the perfect shoe. I wonder what that would entail. Well... I'll tell you, like, I'm going a little bit ahead, but I'm going to tell you that in his mind, he thought that the feet were basically Mm -hmm. the, like, if your feet were good, then your brain was good. So if your feet were taken care of, like, mental health issues would go away and stuff. So he was trying to figure out a way to make it, make the shoe fit the foot so perfectly that, like, there would be no pain and nothing, and then you would be mentally clear. You know, that is, like, pretty... That's pretty clever, though, because there are, like, all those pressure points in your feet. And if you have, like, painful foundation, the it rest is, of your body's yeah, going to be, like, very, out of whack. It is actually, like, he was before his time, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Because there is evidence that your feet do, are linked to certain things. Yeah. Everyone get arch supports, for real. <laughs> um, but back to his childhood. So, No, I know, don't want to go back there. <laughs> I don't want to go back. being punished. He, another punishment was one time Joseph was hit in the head four times with a hammer. What the fuck? By his mother because he wanted to go on a class trip to the zoo. <gasps> oh my God, I want to cry. At one point, Joe, Joseph ran into the house and beat his head against a wall, the walls and tables as his mother chased him with a broom. Oh my God. In the summer of 1944... He was sexually abused at knife point by a gang of older boys. Oh my god. Prompting subsequent episodes in which the only way that he could masturbate was to clench a knife in his fist. (gasps) Oh no. So totally healthy and normal. This poor kid. (laughs) Yes. Oh my god. December 11th, 1945. One of his first actual destructive acts... Uh, happens, which was that he cut up coats of his classmates because he didn't get a birthday present. Oh. Which is kind of a strange lashing out, but I guess that's... Yeah, that's an the, odd association. That's the way that, yeah. yeah. Um, Unless maybe and, his parents were like, you don't get a birthday present because we got you a coat this year. And then he like <laughs> got rid of all the coats. And was like, Although I can't imagine guys. that I really can't imagine he was ever given a birthday present. Yeah, I was going to say that, too. I can't either. So, I don't know, but, you know. Unless it was, like, cobbler tools. (laughs) This is the only research that I have. Yeah, unless it was, like, well, you can cobble one less shoe today. Happy birthday. We'll hit you one last time with the hammer. (laughs) Three whacks to the head. This is awful. In January 1947, he started stealing money from his parents to take neighborhood kids to the movies in an attempt to make friends. No. Yeah. My heart is broken. This is so tragic. But his parents found out he was stealing, and they punished him by having his fingers burned on the stove. Oh, my God. 
Joseph, though, Joseph thought that the pain wasn't bad enough to stop since he had people going to the movies with, so he continued to steal. Oh, my God. He ended up getting burned a total of six times. Because he just wanted friends. Yeah. Super fucked up. Um, That was the thing. Like, I guess... You know, he was working and going to school the rest of the week, but Saturdays he was allowed to go by himself to see a movie, and then he had to return to work or whatever. So that was, like, his only, like, escape was to go see a movie a week. In 1948, puberty is raging in young Joseph. And like all of us, when we're about 13, 14, we cut a hole in the wall for masturbation. While using pictures, <laughs> while using pictures of naked men and women, as well as needing a knife nearby to achieve orgasm. What you don't do that a when you're thirteen? The wall. You know, to stick your little bird in. No, I got the, <laughs> I got the uh, reason behind it, but. Mm. Okay. And then you know, like all of us, we inevitably, uh, inevitably, it gets to the point where we have to cut and stab pictures to become aroused. Oh no. <laughs> oh no no that wasn't you no no okay well no 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 during the same year he persuades his parents to send him to camp for two weeks wow yeah which is like a big thing you know i mean i can't believe that his parents actually did uh-uh. at camp he steals a scope off a rifle and takes it apart he keeps the lens because it makes things bigger why are there scopes on rifles at camp? They have like ri- like archery and rifle I know, shooting like rifles. and stuff. I know rifles, but scope. Well, okay. I mean, okay. I don't know. He I don't likes know. the magnifying glass. It was the forties. They probably got like some guns from the war, and you know, <laughs> gotta train the little soldiers. Yeah, training little soldiers. <laughs> yeah. Um, ten days after he returned from camp. He started hearing demonic voices telling him to cut someone. He boarded a city bus with a knife. He saw a boy get off of the bus and, uh, and he, with a knife, led him into the woods near a stream and ordered him to take off his pants. He then ran off into the woods and never harmed the boy after ordering him to take his pants off. Okay. So he's, I think he's like testing his, you know, testing things. Yeah, that's not a good start. Okay. So he did this three more times in the next few months. With different boys getting off the buses? Yep. Yep. Leading, getting boys off the bus, leading them into the woods at knife point, ordering them to take their pants off and then running away. And how old is he? He's about 14, 14, 15. Oh, mm -hmm. okay. And why is he not at work during these times? Good question. Maybe it was when he was on the way to the movies or something. <laughs> on a Saturday, yep. two hours off? Yep. Yeah, okay. Um, the last victim that he took off the bus, he mm-hmm. reenacted what happened to him with the older boys. Oh, no. And he put the other boy's penis in his mouth and bit it while, oh, he, hold the, while he held the boy at knife point. And then, as if things couldn't get worse, Joseph gets the lead in a school play. Oh. (laughs) Okay. 
he liked it so much that he really wanted to be an actor after he Aww. did really well. Um, he got the lead as Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. Ah, oh, good role. Mm-hmm. But of course, his parents would have nothing to do with it when he came home and told, told them about it. They laughed at him for wanting to be in a play and be an actor, and they beat him. Because what no, he's a cobbler. What the fuck? He can't have, like, any anything to look forward to in his life, ever. No. He got the lead! He's a cobbler. Let him keep the lead! <laughs> it's so fucked up. Uh, I think he did. He did the play, and then when he was done, they wouldn't let him do it again. Fucking awful. When he was 15... Oh, yeah. So, like I said, the one luxury he had was going to the movies on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. When he was 15, he was there. He met a girl, and they began to date. Wow. Her name was Hilda Bergman. Wow. His parents, upon finding out, told him not to see her. Okay. Why? Because <laughs> he's supposed to focus on shoes. He's a cobbler. Oh, God. Um, around the same time... Joseph is told by God that his mission is to heal and save people through their feet. Okay. He, okay. he conducts over 40,000 experiments between 1951 Whoa. and 1972 due to his vision. They didn't exactly wow. go into depth about what kind of experiments he was doing, mm-hmm. but some kind of foot experiments. <laughs> yeah, probably like putting things in shoes and walking around and saying like, yeah. What it did? <laughs> I don't know. Not sure. Um, around that time, he moves into his own place. Oh, good. But he continues to work at his father's shoe shop. Not good. He and Hilda are still together and frequently oh, wow. having sex. Uh-oh, Hilda. For the first time, Careful. he <laughs> For the first time, he has friends. He oh. begins playing poker and pool and also begins drinking. By the way, I mean, I'm saying, oh, but like he like injured, a, like assaulted a child and multiple yeah. children. This is like complicated. Well, yeah, I mean, he's acting out from his own abuse. Ugh, Keep in mind okay. at this time when he gets his own place and ha- starts playing poker and pool and drinking, he's still 15. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. At 17, he drops out of school so he can work full time at the shoe shop and marry Bad Hilda. Bad idea. He and Hilda have two children together shortly after their marriage. However, a few years later, Hilda leaves him because of the domestic violence that she suffered at his hands. For sure. But don't worry about old Joseph. I wasn't. (laughs) Oh, good. Due to severe headaches and a loss of appetite, which doctors believed was a result of stress surrounding his divorce, he was hospitalized. But the test. Okay. Well, yes. Here's the thing: if he's hearing voices, <laughs> and he's not eating, and he's getting headaches, that sounds like. Plus, a he's probably with had divorce. like a shit ton of concussions <laughs> in his life, and yep. it sounds like yep. a neurological thing. No, no, just the divorce. Oh yeah. But the okay. the tests the tests revealed that he had a, a psychopathological nervous disorder. Yeah, he yeah. has something going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something going on. In April of 1958, he married a second time. Jeez. Also, once again, if this dude can find 
two people. Here's the thing. He's like, <laughs> you know, taking them out to movies. Probably giving them like, a bop on the head. Paying their way. Giving them a know. good time out. And I then... mean, they probably came from bad backgrounds, too. True. True, true. I don't know. Anyway, he got married a second time, and he set his own house on fire for amusement. Oh! Oh! And he reaps the benefits of $1,600 from fire insurance. Uh Uh-oh. The next year, he was committed to a state hospital for attempted suicide. Yeah, okay. When he got out of the hospital, having so much fun burning his house down the first time, he burnt his house down again. Yeah, no shit. And a few years later, he burned down two more of his houses. I mean, why not? (laughs) He eventually had five children... With oh my god. His second wife. Oh my uh, god, with her alone. Yeah. So he has seven children. Yes. Shit. So his little bird could do good, apparently. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> they didn't scare too many of the demons out because he's got seven. <laughs> um, <laughs> only one source that I saw, like, named the children, but, like, they only gave four names and there were five of them. Weird. They said that his children were Mary Jo, Joey, Michael, and Jimmy. Okay. Um, so that was the best I could do with names. I don't know. And then I, forget about the other three. Really, only two of the children are important in this oh, no. part. Um, Joey and Michael. So those ones, yeah. those names are like relevant. The other ones aren't very relevant other than, you know, probably had a fucked up life as well. Oh, no. Uh, He was extremely abusive towards his wife and his children Mm -hmm. and often inflicted the same punishments on them that he had suffered from his adoptive parents, which, I mean, that's usually the case if you're being abused. Um, One of the weirder punishments is he would make them every night go into the basement and the basement was unfinished, so it had a dirt floor. Mm -hmm. And every night the kids had to dig. Uh-oh. Deeper and deeper. Uh-oh. Every night they would dig for hours. I don't like where any of this is going. Apparently, Joseph wanted to find hell. So oh, my he God. So to keep <gasps> digging. Ugh. So he would basically, you know, the kids get home from school, do their homework, and then they would have to go dig for like three or four hours. Awful. Yeah, like they, and they couldn't leave. They had to like... Everything, like, if they had to go to the bathroom, they had to go to the bathroom in the ho- in the pit. If they, <gasps> anything, they, like, they just had to use the hole. They couldn't stop digging. They had to keep digging. Oh, so my God. this pit must have been really, really deep. Disgusting. And, you know, he's still the best cobbler money could buy. He was known around town as Crazy Joe. Or, oh, lovely. Or the neighborhood kids called him the Hobbler. Because of the way he walked. <laughs> oh, no. Due to him trying to alter the shape of his feet. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he couldn't make the perfect shoe. These so, were some of the experiments. Yeah, so he was trying to make his feet fit the, you know, fit the shoes. I don't know. I'm not okay, sure well, exactly. That's... Yeah. Yeah, that's not a good idea. That's not going <laughs> to. So, yeah, he was like binding his, he was like binding his feet and doing different mm. things to make his feet In his mind, perfect so that he could have the perfect feet for the perfect shoes. Look, the perfect feet are the ones you got. Yeah, I don't don't know. It it made sense to him, apparently. Well, he was crazy. 
I shouldn't say uh, that. He had some mental uh, health uh, issues going on. Uh, yeah, and he was, like, beaten into some of them. Uh, probably most of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On my birthday, January 23rd, 1972, oh. he branded his oldest daughter with a hot iron from, for running away from home. Yeah, no shit she ran away from home. <laughs> that same year, 12-year-old Joey went to the police station with his 9-year-old brother Michael and his 13-year-old mm-hmm. sister Mary Jo. A 19-year-old boy had accompanied them. And it said that the 19-year-old neighbor boy was possibly the sister's boyfriend, which is like, what the fuck? The sister's 13. And the 19-year-old yeah. neighbor boy? Oh, boy. But, you know, that could have been a need for escape. Uh, on her part, for sure. Yeah. Oh, and I put no. in here, age gap love. No. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> And so they went to the police. I'm always thrown in an age gap. You like always <laughs> get an age gap. I like to see a dry heave. <laughs> so gross. Um, they went to the police and they accused their father of severe abuse. Good for them. The children explained that they were afraid to go home. Yeah. They offered a wide range of things their father had done to hurt and humiliate and them. The police did nothing. And the friend, uh, the boyfriend or whatever he uh-huh. was. Let's call him a friend, a cool. neighbor corroborated their tale by describing how Callinger had once threatened them at gunpoint. Wow. So he was clearly a dangerous man. Yeah. He had even at one point hit the children on the knees with a hammer. No. No. A physical examination at the hospital indicated that they did have suspicious burns and bruises. Yeah. However, when the police talked... (laughs) No, however... However, when the police talked to them, and by them I mean Joseph and his wife, yeah, yeah, obviously they denied oh, the such just things. Roughhouse, really hard. Yeah, they they denied things and complained that the children had run away. They also said that the children could have gotten hurt anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, not that badly. What the hell? <laughs> Joseph was nevertheless charged with three counts of abuse, and he had Whoa. to go to court. Oh, good. Two doctors gave him a psychological exam and determined that he had an IQ of 84. Uh, oh. He complained of headaches and doctors mm. at the time thought he suffered from sexual anxiety, which is like, what, what the fuck? Okay, so it's like they're getting some of it right and then yeah. the rest of it, it's like, what the fuck was happening in the 40s? <laughs> or this is the 70s. This oh, is the shit. 70s, yeah. God damn. The the coin, however, the coin the coin the coin the court appointed doctors <laughs> diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah, that sounds more spot on. Yeah, they recommended that he be committed and that upon his release, he and his family receive supervision. Yes. Other doctors who came into contact with Callinger, however, did not feel as strongly about his diagnosis. They said he had problems, but he was competent to stand trial. Uh, I mean, I'd go with the first couple. The uh, court-appointed ones. Although I could see why they would want him to, like, stand trial and actually, like, you know, take responsibility for the actions. Yeah, but if he's going to be committed to actually get help, 
and then supervised afterwards so he's not doing that shit again that sounds like more important sounds like what he needs as opposed to punishment where he's not going to learn and um, a collection of information about the family revealed that all of the boys were emotionally disturbed yeah Uh, but those same doctors apparently didn't see a connection with Callinger's mental health issues (laughs) oh my god they considered him to be merely self-centered and immature. The However, Joseph, yeah, was the, the doctors that didn't think that the doctors that didn't think that he was immature. Yeah, the mm-hmm. ones that didn't think that he was like diagnosable. They just thought he was. What about him like binding his feet and talking to God? No. <laughs> Um, however, and they digging did... a pit to hell. No. <laughs> well, no? I don't know how much of this they knew. They did say, though, that they recommended that all the family members should go through counseling. Yes. Um, Joseph went to trial and was convicted of all charges and sentenced to a short prison term. How short? Uh, It didn't say exactly, but I'll tell you why it was shortened. Shortened. Um, In February 1973, Callinger's three accusing children appeared in court to submit affidavits saying that they had lied. Of course. That the charges against their father were false. Mm -hmm. The children changed their report while Callinger was in jail, which set him free. Callinger should have been placed in a mental institution, but but the judge decided that the father should be supporting his family instead and let him go. Mm, No. So do you think that they did that because the mom probably needed help supporting the kids and they, like, didn't have any money or a way to make money? And then they were like, we need to get your dad out? Yes. Uh, the judge had no choice but to clear Callinger's record. No, although, why? Although the police... Because the kids said it was, it oh, was false. Oh, because they recanted. No. So the police who had initially, initially talked with the children believed there was something very odd about their sudden redaction. Yeah, good. They said they'd made it up because their father was too strict and they Uh, just wanted to get him in trouble. uh Years later, Joseph said that he began to call the children the quote unquote total gods because they had overpowered the king. What? (gasps) Delusions. So he, he was afraid of them. Okay. Okay. Joey, who had been in some trouble already, acknowledged his part in bringing false charges, and he ended up in Bucks County Reformatory. What? He was already in trouble, and he, you know, he admitted it. The social workers had evaluated him as being seriously disturbed and needed I'm professional sure. observation. Yeah. But he was able to receive weekend passes. What the fuck? And at one point, he turned up in the offices of the Philadelphia Bulletin, which was a newspaper. He was beaten up and on a pair of crutches. He said he'd fallen off a train and had broken his leg. Wow. The newspaper workers found out that he was Joseph's child, and so they called Joseph to come get his kid. Mm-hmm. Um, Joseph came down to the newspaper office and began to argue with Joey, insisting that he return to the reformatory. So Joey did as he was told, and in mm-hmm. May 1974, he was released. So on the to- weekends, he was going home, or he was just, like, doing whatever? It didn't say what he was doing on the weekends. Okay. Other than he kind of snapped, and I'm not sure why he went to a newspaper, but he did. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's a little disturbed. Yeah, obviously. So 
Two months later, after he's released, Joseph took out a life insurance policy on Joey and his younger son. Uh Uh-oh. Joey would... Joey's uh, life insurance policy would pay $45,000 in the event of his death. By the end of that same month, Joseph went to the police to report Joey was missing. No. They did a, a search. Month? They did a search, but nothing turned up. Oh, God. In August, so a month later, a wrecking crew found Joey... His body lay in a sub-basement area of a building scheduled for demolition. Oh, God. Broken bricks and rubble had covered him, making the body difficult to see. The pathologists could not determine a clear cause of death. But they thought that the boy had been buried alive. Oh, my God. Because another boy from North Philadelphia had suffered a similar fate that same month in an abandoned factory building. (gasps) Oh my god. Almost at once, Joseph filed a claim with the John Hancock Mutual Life Insurance Company. Mm -mm. They refused to honor it. He He argued that he had taken out life insurance on two of his sons because of his five children, they were the most reckless. Mm -hmm. And and he said, look, the other ones aren't dead, so, uh, like, you know... The fuck? The 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 other one that I took a life insurance policy out on is not dead, so it couldn't have been me. Like obviously, uh-huh, I'm just so trying to collect on this. Clearly, I mean, I didn't kill two of my kids within a month, so obviously, I didn't kill one. Obviously. What the fuck? The company did not budge. Yeah, good. They could not prove murder, but they did not buy his story, partly because of his history as a poor in as a poor insurance risk, because of. All, All the, the fires, fires he had set earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. During all this, uh, he was having full-blown hallucinations and mm. holding conversations with a disembodied torso named Charlie. Uh-oh. And he was receiving personal orders from God. Oh, good. God, and or Charlie, uh, instructed him... To kill young boys and sever their penises. Fucking A, Charlie. What the hell? (laughs) Joseph decides to enlist the help of his now 13-year-old son, Michael. No. He tells Michael of God's new plan for him. And surprisingly, Michael agrees to join him on this beautiful new life journey. Why, Michael? (laughs) Frolicking through the fields of wee-wees and ding-dongs into the sunset. Happily ever after. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, a few days after they decided to get friendship bracelets to make this to make into cute little charm bracelets with little mm-hmm. dicks dangling on it. Mm-hmm. Wait. Well, oh yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> a few dicks later. A few dicks. <laughs> Excuse me. Slip no. of the tongue. A few this days later, they managed to capture a poi. A po- oh my god, I cannot yeah, read. Yeah, you got dicks on the mind now. I got you can't d- even dicks on the mind. <laughs> you can't even speak properly. <laughs> a few weeks later, they managed. Mm-hmm. A few days later, they managed to capture <laughs> a poor ten-year-old little boy no. named no. Jose Callazo. No. And I don't know why every article insisted on calling him the Puerto Rican boy, but uh, uh. I'm just gonna say he was a child. <laughs> 
They apparently tortured him and killed him and then cut off his genitals. That autumn, the father-son team began ranging farther um, in their searches for victims. On November 22nd, they burglarized a home in Lindenwald, New Jersey, but no one was home. At their second stop, victim Joan... Victim Joan Cardi was tied to her bed and sexually abused by Joseph Callinger. Eleven days later, in Susquehanna Township, Pennsylvania, five hostages were bound and robbed at knife point. The Callingers making off with $20,000 in cash and jewelry after slashing one victim's breast. No. Striking in Homeland, Maryland, a Baltimore suburb, Father and son held Pamela Jasky captive in her home, forcing her to fillet Joseph at gunpoint. So they're just going on this crazy crime spree for no Bre- fucking reason. Yeah, breaking into homes, and it seems like there's not huge plans other than break in, and then whatever happens, happens. Like, mostly they want to the steal fuck? stuff and maybe assault some people. On January 6th, the ritual was repeated in Dumont, New Jersey, the victim, Mary R- Rudolph. And then this one, okay, so I got a lot of this. I mean, obviously, most of this is verbatim from where I copied sources, but I, this source went into great detail about this next attack, and so I just wanted to oh, read it. No. <laughs> When police were called to the house on Glenwood Avenue in Leonia, New Jersey, on, a- on the afternoon of January 8, 1975, they believed they were responding to a report that a woman was having a breakdown. A neighbor, Lucy Bev- Bevacqua, told police that her neighbor was outside screaming and would not stop. Mm. Edwina Romaine had come hopping out of her house, screaming at the top of her lungs, words like gun and basement. She had then collapsed. Miss Bevacqua had had seen that her feet were bound. She immediately... What? They thought she was having a mental breakdown when she's like, (laughs) what? I don't know. Okay. She immediately called the police. When an officer arrived, Edwina said, my God, they're killing my family. while hyperventilating in panic. She managed to explain that two armed men had entered her home and taken her friends and relatives prisoner. They had guns and knives. The officer called for backup and then went into the house. He noticed it was in disarray. A lamp and phone cords were cut. He then saw movement behind the couch. He aimed his gun, demanding the person show themselves. Soon a woman wriggled out oh. around the couch from the ha- wriggled out from behind the couch tied up all she could manage to say was upstairs oh he untied her and told her to go outside he made his way upstairs and upon entering a bedroom he found two more women and a young boy all of them were naked one young woman was on the floor her hands bound and with a lot of adhesive tape over her face The other woman was laying on the bed, also bound, and the boy lying next to her. He freed them and asked them what happened. They told him that a man had come into their home and threatened them at knife point and with a pistol. He tied them up and had an 
and he had an adolescent boy with him. Oh. He was then informed that there were more people in the basement. Oh my god. By this time, his backup had arrived. They made their way down to the basement. After this calling out... This lone police officer went into this yeah. all on his own. Oh my god. After calling out and hearing no response, the officers readied their guns. They flipped on the lights, and once their eyes adjusted, they saw a young woman in a white dress and shoe- with shoes lying on her back near a wall. Hmm. Her hands were bound together, and her clothes were heavily stained with blood. No. As they came closer, it was clear to them she was dead. Aww. Someone had slashed open her throat from one <sighs> side to the other. <sighs> then they heard a man groaning nearby. Another victim. He was on the floor near the furnace. His hands were bound behind his back, and his feet were bound together. His pants and underwear had been pulled down to his feet. Adhesive tape had been wound over his face and head, covering his mouth, nose, and eyes, but he appeared otherwise unharmed. The officer freed him, and he immediately asked about the others. There had been eight of them in the home, he said, including him, and he learned that everyone but a young woman were freed and unharmed. He'd heard nothing because of the furnace. It was so loud next to him, he couldn't hear anything. A How search did that, that one woman escape? Like, oh my God, if it wasn't for her. I tell Jesus. you. A search of the house indicated that the perpetrators had left. No one in the home knew who they were. So now I'm going to go into to detail um, based on what, the, what everyone in the house yeah. said happened. Yeah, yeah. Dee Dee Wiseman, 28, had come with her four-year-old son to see her parents, Edwina and DeWitt Romaine. DeWitt was in the hospital recovering from a heart attack he'd had a month earlier, and Edwina had gone to see him. Dee Dee's 21-year-old twin sisters, Randy and Retta, still lived there, but were out that morning. Retta was with her boyfriend Frank Welby, and Randy left for the hospital when Dee Dee came in. Dee Dee was going to look after her bedridden 90-year-old grandmother until someone returned to take over. Around 1.30, she said she had seen a swarthy, dark-haired man and slender boy with long, dirty, blonde hair walking hand-in-hand on Greenwood Avenue near the house. Swarthy. (laughs) (laughs) And she had recognized them as a couple she had seen earlier when taking her daughter back to school (gasps) after lunch. Ew. They were strangers, not people from the neighborhood. The man was rather scruffy and did not look like a salesman. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. But Dee Dee had not given them much thought. To her surprise, they were soon on the front porch knocking on the door. Dee Dee went to open the door to see what they wanted. Um, as salesmen did not generally call in this area, and it was strange to see a man and a boy come up the walk. They were dressed in ordinary clothes but they made her vaguely uneasy. In fact, they exuded an odd smell, though she could not place the odor. The older man told her that he was a John Hancock salesman. She did not know what to say, and he asked her if anyone else was at home. She asked him to leave. Instead, he forced her back into the house. His son followed without a word. Shocked, Dee Dee tried to push him back, and they struggled. The boy just stood and watched. The man drew a revolver out of his coat, but Dee Dee continued to try and shove him out the door. Dee Dee's, 
Dee Dee's four-year-old son Bobby came into the living room, and seeing his mom, he began to scream. It was an opportunity for the intruder. He pointed his gun at the child, which made Dee Dee stop for fear her son would be harmed. Oh, no. That allowed him to come all the way into the house. The boy closed and locked the door. Ugh, it's so creepy. The man grabbed Dee Dee by the hair and told her he was going to rob the place. She had better do as he said. Bobby continued screaming. Dee Dee felt helpless and worried about her grandmother upstairs. The man ordered Dee Dee to close her eyes and not look at him, although it seemed rather late for that. <laughs> just well, before yeah. Yeah, just before she obeyed, she saw the boy run into the room behind her. She also saw a knife in the man's hand. He wanted to know who else was there, so she said that her grandmother was on the second floor. Dragging Dee Dee by the hair, he forced her up the steps. Bobby ran to her side, holding on to her clothes as he screamed. Aww. They checked the grandmother to be certain she could not get out of bed before the intruder forced Dee Dee into another room on that floor. There, he told her to sit on the bed while he put adhesive tape around her head, covering her eyes. With each rap, she became more terrified. He stuck a cloth of some kind in her mouth and taped over that as well. Then, he demanded that she remove her clothes. She feared he was going to rape her in front of her son, when she did not comply, he removed them himself. Once he was done, once that was done, he asked if she expected anyone else to come home. She nodded mutely, hoping that might intimidate or get rid of him. He placed her hands behind her back and taped them together. Then he took her rings. He then pushed her onto the bed and tied her ankles together with some kind of cord, probably with lamp cord or something he had cut. Mm -hmm. uh, as he was doing this, Dee Dee heard him instruct the boy to lock the doors downstairs. She wondered where her son was, but then heard him protest as the man apparently was removing his clothes as well. Aww. Within moments, she felt the four-year-old pressed against her body. She could not begin to understand what the man was doing, but she was relieved to have her son close to her. He told the boy to roll over and pretend he was asleep. Her captor then forced her onto her back, seemingly to rape her, but she was on her period, and he made some comment that indicated that he was put off by that. <laughs> Just at that moment, the doorbell rang downstairs. Someone had arrived at the house. Randy Romaine, one of the twins, now had her own story to tell. Oh, no. She was the person who had rung the bell when she was found when she had found the door locked. She had returned from the hospital after seeing her dad. The door opened, and she expected to see her older sister and her nephew, but she didn't know the man who had opened the door. What was he doing in her home? He smiled at her as, as if to ease her suspicion, and then grabbed her no. and, put, and put a gun to her head. He told her he was robbing the house and instructed her to comply. He locked the front door again before telling her to close her eyes. She did so and then felt him push her up the steps. She heard him talk to someone named John. He asked for money and she gave him five dollars. In her own room, she saw Dee Dee and Bobby nude but apparently unharmed and showed the frightening, and showed the frightening man where he could find her money. Then he told her to remove her clothes. She was startled and unwilling to comply. 
He pulled out a knife, so she quickly obeyed. When he asked her if anyone else was coming home, she tried to scare him. She said that she soon expected a lot of people, and he just had time to get away. He didn't move. Instead, he concentrated on tying and gagging her. He threatened her with a knife to make her submissive. She saw his son watching and felt humiliated as the man pushed her on her back. But she, too, was having her period, which seemed to stop him. Oh. <laughs> period saves the day. Yeah, it's cycle. Uh, what's that when your cycles sync up? Synced cycles. Synced cycles, Fred. <laughs> The Sync Cycle Sisters. Um, <laughs> sync Cycles Save Lives. Oh. Uh. Sync Your Cycles. The man went out, leaving his accomplice in the room to search for valuables and money. Soon Randy could no longer hear them, or hear him. She tried to free herself, and then she heard the doorbell ring. Oh, the boy no. went downstairs, and it wasn't long before Randy realized that her mother had come home. And was now a hostage as well. And that wasn't all. Edwina Romaine had come home with Retta and Frank. Aww. They had knocked on the door and had been met by the swarthy intruder with his gun leveled at them. He commanded them to come in and do as he said. The man told the, woman, the women to lie face down on the living room floor near the television and Frank was to lie by the fireplace. He stripped them all of their jewelry and watches and tied their feet together with cords that he had cut from the lamps, Venetian blinds, and vacuum cleaner. Then, I feel like at that point, if someone meets you at the front door with a gun, you, like, fucking run, right? Because if he shoots you on the street, like, at least people will know something's going down. That's the whole thing about never going to a second location with someone. Like, they're not, most likely they're not going to, they don't want to make a scene there. They want to get you right. to a more secluded location. right. So make a scene. I mean, obviously, like, you think differently when it's actually happening. But I feel like you just, like, run. Especially if there are three of you, like, fucking everyone going a different direction. But then again, if you're you're there with your mother and you don't know if she's going to run and she might go in, you might feel protective and might want to go with her to protect her or something. Oh, Oh. That's 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 a tough decision, and like you said, you don't know what you're gonna do yeah, in that you don't know situation. What you're do. Um, the the man and the boy went through the house, turning things over, breaking things, and banging around. Edwina and Retta both managed to work their hands free, but they remained as they were to await an opportune moment to try and escape. Wow! Once again, the doorbell rang. Now an eighth person was about to come into this insane situation. When the man opened the door, he heard the voice of a young woman, Maria Fashing, a nurse from the hospital. The man told her, I think like the nurse was coming because she would come and do daily checks on the grandmother that was. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Bedridden upstairs. Bedridden, yes. Yeah. The man told her he was robbing the house and she would have to come in and do as he said. She was forced to lie face down next to Frank across his legs. Then Frank was told to get up and he was forced down the basement steps. He was gagged with a handkerchief and his head taped securely with adhesive tape. I don't know why they say adhesive tape. I've never had tape that wasn't adhesive. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Other than like like a VHS tape or a cassette tape. Then they wrapped their heads in VHS tapes. <laughs> The robber threatened them with a knife, 
and pulled his f- pulled Frank's pants down, letting him know how vulnerable he was. A few minutes later, he heard the nurse Maria being brought down into the other room. Oh, Maria. Then the furnace blower came on, and Frank said he couldn't make out any more sounds. Mm. He said he thought he heard screams, but he couldn't be sure. Everyone in the ha- everyone else in the house heard them. Oh, God. And Maria's last words were to call for help and to shout, I'm drowning. Oh, no. Indeed, they all later learned that she had drowned in her own blood as it spurted, oh. as it spurted from her cut arteries into her throat. Oh, God. Edwina began to scream. She couldn't stand what was happening and believed they were all going to be killed one by one. She pulled herself loose and with her feet still bound, she hopped. Out of the house. That's amazing. And onto the street where her neighbor saw her and called police. Oh my god. Retta shoved herself underneath the couch. Everyone else waited and wondered what was going to happen next. The wow. boy shouted, Someone's loose! And he and the man left the house by the back door. Um, so that's what happened, and then the investigation began at once. Not far away, an important piece of evidence was found. A woman walking her dog had seen a man and a boy run down a hill, bend over in a puddle of water to do something, and then run away. The man had taken off his shirt and tie and left them laying on the ground. The woman called the police, and they confiscated the discarded shirt and tie, which appeared to have bloodstains on them, for testing. The puddle, too, apparently appeared to have been used to wash blood away. In the mud, it was a clear. There was a clear footprint, <gasps> which they set to work to cast. Oh! A bus driver said he had picked up two passengers who had a strange appearance that matched the offenders and had transported them to New York City. Because one wasn't wearing a shirt. <laughs> uh, yeah, and they like smelled weird, and they were covered in mud and blood and stuff. Yeah. He said they seemed to be in a hurry. It was not. <laughs> It was not difficult to trace their route from the park to the bus stop since they had been discarding things like watches, bracelets, rings, and the leather ni- a leather what? knife sheath along the way. So clearly it's not about the robbery. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be about power. The police even found the knife still bloody, and it was a match to the wounds um, from the murder victim. They also found a thirty-two caliber revolver cast aside in some bushes. And the Romains recognized it as the gun the man had used to threaten them. Hmm. Prosecutor Larry McClure figured out figured that this odd couple had done burglaries before, so he sent out a description of the man-boy team and received back four separate incidents in New Jersey, Maryland, and Pennsylvania towns. All of the victims into whose homes the man had gained... En- the man and boy had gained entrance, agreed that the man had a peculiar odor about him. Ew. Their M.O. was to have the boy knock on doors and asked if someone named Jones lived there while the man waited in the street. Whenever a young woman with a nice build answered, especially one with children to be used as leverage, they would force their way inside to rob the place, strip the woman, tie her up, and subject her to sexual assault. Often, the woman was tied to the box springs of a bed. The man had ordered three of the women he'd bound to perform oral sex on him, 
and he had unsuccessfully tried to rape one of them. At another home, he had forced four female members of a bridge club who had arrived one by one into various humiliating positions in the nude. He made one woman look at his knife as as if it was a substitute for his penis. Ew. He had also cut one on the chest. Then he and the boy had run. Um, like I said, from that home, I said earlier that they had gotten $20,000 worth of goods. In another home, they were able to take $5,000 in valuables, and they always got away on a bus. So, back to the shirt that they, the officers had found. The laundry mark on the shirt discarded in Leonia had been cleaned up, um, and the tag they could read said, Callinger, but it was spelled with one L, and his uh-huh. name is spelled with two L's. Huh. So they did their investigations, but no one named Callinger had a police record of any kind in relevant oh towns, including Philadelphia and New York. Detective Rossman decided to do some gumshoe investigation, hey. which I thought was such an appropriate word for a cobbler. <laughs> <laughs> He took the shirt with him to Philadelphia and discovered that the shirt maker sold to only one outlet, the Berg Brothers store in in North on North Front Street. Rosman or Roseman uh, went there in hope that he could find a clerk who might remember a swarthy, smelly man Ew. like that described by the victims. But he was disappointed. No one could place the man. Yet the shirt had to have been purchased there. So there was some chance that the man lived in the general vicinity. Now it became a matter of looking up the name Callinger in the phone book. Roseman called the police department one more time and quickly found out that they did indeed have a record for a man by such a name, but it turned out to be Callinger with two L's, not one. Uh-oh. With the correct surname in hand, Roseman went from one laundry and shirt service place to another until he got the full name, Joseph Callinger. The owner of Bright Sun Cleaners on North North Front Street recognized the shirt from the distinctive smell. Ew! The smell had come from a chemical that Joseph used in his shoe repair business. Uh-huh. Roseman learned that Joseph Callinger lived in Kensington in northeast Philadelphia, and that's where his shop was located as well, because he lived above his shop. <laughs> Naturally. He had a wife and five children. The police knew of him because of the way one of because of the way one of his sons has had mysteriously died in 1974. Mm-hmm. They had been watching him waiting, certain that one day he would slip up. Police converged on the home of 100 East Sterner Street, near North Front Street, around 9.45 that evening to arrest Callinger, 39, and his son Michael. Joseph had seen them coming and had crawled through a hole... Wait, he was at home? Yeah. Wasn't he on, like, the spree? Yeah, but at this time he had come home. Oh, convenient yeah okay. what's more convenient is that he had previously his his parents lived right next door and he had dug a hole from his house oh, to their God. house so he crawled through the hole and phoned his lawyer 
He told he lived the arresting right next door to his parents. <laughs> yep. Ew. He, he told the arresting officers that he would make no statements until his lawyer arrived. Mm-hmm. He merely offered that he was innocent. Mm-mm. Both Joseph and his son were suspects in a seven-week, three-state crime spree, including wow. robbery and rape. The son was sent to the Dauphin County Juvenile Detention Center to await his fate. Joseph's wife, Elizabeth, protested all of this, saying that too much tragedy had been visited on her family. Her son had died a year before, her sister right afterwards, her mother faced surgery, and now this? It was all a terrible mistake. Well, she shouldn't have married a monster. <laughs> her husband had not done these things. The police searched the home and his mother's home next door and found valuables connected to several of the homes that had been burglarized. Yeah, of course during the seven-week spree, these pieces they removed for evidence. Reporters from the Philadelphia Inquirer interviewed neighbors and shop owners around the area, all of whom knew the reclusive cobbler. In chorus, they all said they were certain that Callinger was innocent. He was no murderer. As Callinger was taken from the interrogation room, he happened to see his son sitting in another area waiting to be processed. He went up to his son and said, if you tell them anything, I'll kill you. Ugh. Police and social workers tried to get the boy to explain why his record of school absences coincided with the dates of each crime, <laughs> but he refused to talk. Uh-huh. The lawyer suggested that the shirt found in Leonia had been planted. Fingerprints found at the scene were flimsy evidence. Oh. <laughs> Mrs. Callinger insisted that the jewelry the police had taken from her home was her own costume jewelry. Mm-hmm. Once Joseph was in jail, Mrs. Callinger seemed greatly relieved and did not want to have him back in her home. Yeah, fuck that guy. So I think she's going to put up a protest with the thought that he might come back, you know, and, mm-hmm. and she can be like, I did everything. Yeah. Because yeah. obviously she's a victim too. Yeah, she's probably terrified of him. Yeah. For the first time in a long time, she told a social worker she was free. In the meantime, Joseph was preparing his defense. He began to talk about how God had a mission for him. He was to assist people whose brains had been adversely affected by shoes that were poorly constructed. Uh-huh. He said that the devil in various guises had pursued had pursued him for over 1,000 years. Wow. In August, Callinger was given a psychiatric examination for two hours to determine if he was competent to stand trial. Dr. John Hume concluded that Callinger suffered from antisocial personality disorder. He seemed to feign trouble with his memory, and he mentioned having visitations from God. His intellectual limitations, having dropped out of school at the eighth grade, were obvious, but he talked coherently and apparently and appeared to understand exactly what he was asked. Mm-hmm. Organically, he appeared to be normal. Neurological tests came up with no glaring results. The, psychia- the, the psychiatrist also questioned another inmate who told him that Callinger had killed the nurse because she repe- refused to provide oral sex. He also mentioned mm. that his robberies were, were paying for his defense... And that he was going to fake insanity. Hume concluded that at the very least, Callinger knew right from wrong and was competent to stand trial. Mm-hmm. 
In the first trial, in late spring of 1975, uh, it ended early, Callinger brought a Bible and the life of Christ to read throughout the jury selection process oh, good. and legal preparations. Mm-hmm. However, when a sheriff's matron let slip in front of the jury that Callinger was a suspect in a murder, the judge declared a mistrial oh, and shit. it was scheduled for a year later. Oh, my God. Or sorry, for later that year. The second trial, which lasted eight days, began September 8th, 1975, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Callinger was charged with four counts of robbery, four counts of false imprisonment, and one count of burglary. So this is just in this one, in the Pennsylvania right. case, where he did, where the murder didn't happen. So he's right, being charged right. with this first. Okay. He came before Judge John Dowling, and his team consisted of Malcolm Berkowitz and Ar- Arthur Gutkick. Gutkin. Gutkin. <laughs> Arthur Gutkin. The prosecution team was Leroy Zimmerman and Richard Guida. Uh, or Guida. Once again, Callinger read the Bible throughout, seeming to pay little attention except when his attorney asked him something. All four victims were called from the home where they had where they had planned the bridge party, and the three and three of them had positively identified Callinger as their attacker. When police officers took the stand to testify that some pieces of jewelry they had found in Callinger's home during a search had been identified by victims as theirs. They also testified that fingerprints lifted in the home were the victims uh, where sorry in the home where the victims had been assaulted were a match to Joseph Callinger. I mean, was, flimsy. So uh, yeah, yeah, very flimsy, very flimsy. We all have the same <laughs> fingerprints. <laughs> and jewelry, like we all got the same jewelry yeah. and fingerprints. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. no big deal. <laughs> there wasn't much more the prosecutor prosecutor needed to establish that Callinger had been in the home on the date of the incident. Yeah. And had Seems taken the things, yeah, and had taken the things reported missing. His son was never brought in because I guess they could never really prove that the son was there. But hmm. the defense wanted to raise the issue of his mental state at the time of the offense. They called Mrs. Callinger and a physician, but their primary oh, no. case rested on Callinger taking the stand in his own defense. <gasps> yes. Yes. It soon became clear during testimony that they hoped the jury would see for themselves what a disturbed man he was. Right. He mentioned that there are lots of periods that I can't recall and claimed Look, he's that... a great actor. He played Scrooge. <laughs> That's so what I'm saying. He's going to put on a show. He's going to be an actor of life. Yeah. He claimed that God communicated with him by touching his arm and conveying specific feelings. Hmm. He discussed, he discussed his mission, which was to construct special heel plates for shoes so that people's souls would be aligned in the right ways for God's coming in 1978, three <laughs> years hence. <laughs> Wait, here's, here's the thing about the shoe thing. That's like his defense, but it's like that has nothing to do with, you know, sexual assault and burglary and Look, murder. He obviously had to do a little burgling to get some money to fund his heel thing. Why he and, was making bank being a and cobbler. really he was gonna help people get closer to God. With their heels set straight. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. He said the heel of the foot is an area <laughs> of the body that controls the mind 
And if pressures are placed against the various parts that surround the heel of the foot, it mm-hmm. blocks off various valves leading to the mind. Okay, so he made himself, like, mentally unwell by putting pressure on the wrong parts of his heels. He hasn't found the perfect shoe yet. It's not his fault. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know, no, I know. <laughs> Supposedly, that situation made people feel tired. I don't know what, what that means. It just said here. Oh, and then it said, it it should be noted that while this information may have sounded strange in 1975, it's not so far-fetched any longer with shoe companies making many claims about the health of the foot and the right footwear, including attention to the heel. True that. Also, maybe maybe him going on and on about, like, heel points made them tired. (laughs) They're all like, this is so I think, like, boring. yeah, it might have, it, yeah, it might have been him going into great details about his experiments and yeah, his, the, the heel and points on the heel. People were like, okay, we get it. <laughs> you love heels, fine. Oh my god, do you think that he associated since like the bottom of the foot is the sole of the foot? Oh, that he literally thought that the that the human soul for God was in the foot. And, and the heel is where you heal. Heel. Oh. oh my God, we're like so smart. <laughs> Dude, we put that together in like two minutes. So Damn. we could definitely well, make the perfect shoe. To be fair, I had much longer to put that together oh. since I've been doing the research. But I guess you are the smart uh, one. Hey, let's make <laughs> the perfect shoe. Let's do it. Heel comfort. And then Callenger also indicated that he was the son of God and that for 961 years, he (laughs) existed as a butterfly. Oh, okay. Here's the thing about that, though. Butterflies only live like a day at a time. It's a lot of butterflies. You'd have to come back like 900 and some times as a butterfly. More because that's 961 years. So 961 oh, times 365, He's just like, I'm not a math person, but that's a lot. <laughs> living life as a caterpillar, and then that one day as a butterfly, and then... Yeah, I'm just saying. That man, is, I'm that just is a saying, lot of butterfly, man. Fucking, yeah, a lot, a lot of time. Do you think butterfly heels matter as much as human heels? <laughs> Do butterflies have heels? I don't know. I don't know what their feet look like. <laughs> I don't know. He was like, I was huh. the angriest butterfly, and now I didn't I know. have proper shoes. It's because I needed the shoes. Oh my god, what if he's cobbling <gasps> tiny butterfly shoes? Oh my god, oh. no one else steal that idea. We TM. We are we are trademarking butterfly shoes. <laughs> Maybe that's why they only live a day. If they had the proper footwear, they could live yes. forever. Yes. Yes. Oh, we'll do our own experiments. We'll shoe all the butterflies. We are going to need the tiniest (laughs) little tools. Get out your little nets. Let's do this. (laughs) Berkowitz, his attorney or his defense, one of the defense guys, when I first read that, I was like, Berkowitz? Like, Uh, I I, I was like, I think I'm reading the wrong page. (laughs) Shit. Um, Other Berkowitz. He mm. took him throughout his workday, placing emphasis on the chemicals that he had used and the fact that oh. they had, he had no ventilation in his workspace. Mm-hmm. The attorney was getting at the idea that during the period of the crimes that occurred, Callinger had suffered the ill effects of the chemical fumes. Not to right. mention he was around them since he was like three. Right, right. 
So kind of like the Mad Hatter situation. The Mad Cobbler. He said, I was having a lot of problems with seeing. He said, I I was having a lot of problems with my speech, my breathing, with... It was just ridiculous. My eyes would twitch, hands would shake, various things like my sense of touch would be altered. Berkowitz I mean, failed also, to... your fingers were burned how many times? Exactly. And you're so... feeling God touch your arm, so there ain't some, something going on with the he feelings. He probably has, in... like, nerve damage for sure, but I don't know. Yeah, from all those chemicals okay. and the beatings. Yeah, the beatings. Berkowitz the failed to... Co- <laughs> yeah. Berkowitz failed to call anyone to the stand to corroborate this sudden change in Callender's behavior, nor did he was enlist... Was it sudden? That's what I'm saying. Like, it it seems like it was just... It long, just escalated, you know, It was just right? escalating, yeah. yeah. Nor did he enlist professionals to testify to the effects of the fumes and mm. the statistics on how many other people who used it suffered similar mental problems. I was just going to say, get the other cobblers in there. Uh-huh. He merely he merely had Callinger read off the cautionary notes of the label on the products. <laughs> Which is like, uh, dude, your lawyers suck. <laughs> yeah. Yet it should also be noted that the prosecutor well, unless unless they didn't bring anyone up because other cobblers weren't having those issues. Right. Could I be. don't know. I mean, chances are they were having some issues though, if they weren't ventilating and they're using like harsh chemicals. But well, it doesn't matter because the prosecutor didn't even counter any of any. Sorry, the prosecutor didn't even counter with any of his own experts. Yeah, you don't need to really or even object. He just like let him talk. Yeah, I guess they could see for himself. Wrong with him for sure. Yeah. One rather startling contradiction was that Callinger's youngest daughter was having health problems. He had written numerous letters to specialists across the country in search of a solution. And so they used that to say that that was fairly organized and coherent intellectual behavior from uh-huh. a man claiming to have such extensive disabilities. To ask for help for his To daughter. like write, write letters like, and find, like find experts in like these health fields and write letters to them. Well, yeah, without were, like, the internet. Coherent. What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, and... No one seemed to notice his behavioral discrepancy. He also had taken care of his children over the years. Did the family... Did he? A- well, I know. I mean... I know. When they said that, I was like, really? I mean, I guess, like, <laughs> he was... Stretch. He was at home. He, like, provided money for them. I guess. And He provided letters, a nice so. dig- digging hobby. It's just he murdered oh, one no. of them, but it's fine. It's just it's the one. It's fine. Uh, and he also did all the family accounting and ran a 12-hour-a-day business Shit. while taking okay. care of his bedridden mother. So he, okay. If he because, do, wait, just uh, let me say this. Because yeah. according to him, yeah. his wife was not very good at these tasks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she probably hated all of them. So. <laughs> the mother was, like, fucking awful. So he was well, apparently competent enough to somewhat how- run a home. Look, how is he making his children dig for hours when he's, like, at the cobbler shop all fucking day? That's the thing. Like, when they get home from school, you know, they're doing their homework, probably, like, eating dinner. And then as soon as he gets home, it's down to dig the hole. Well, and then he's taking care of his mom. Like, fuck that woman. She's a bitch. Mm -hmm. She's a bitch. Why would he take care of her? (laughs) 
Yet, despite his apparent competency to run a home life, he still claimed that he had no memory of being at the home of the victims who were now accusing him. Mm. He couldn't understand how their valuables could possibly end up in his mother's home or his home. (laughs) He believed that at the time of the incident, he was probably taking one of his regular naps. Uh, that that was, was like his alibi. Uh, sorry, like I was probably napping during that time, so it look, I have nap been very regularly. When did these crimes happen? Oh yeah, you nap know, time and um, could, nap time. My my mother could be not really bedridden, and when I'm napping, she's sneaking out. Oh, you know, and then uh-huh. accusing me. She's like dressing up as as me <laughs> as, a, as a swarthy man. Yeah, as a swarthy man. <laughs> <laughs> She's got that shoe polish in her hair, looking uh-huh. good. Swarthy. Speaking of swarthy and odors. Oh, do you want to get rid of your swarthy odors? <laughs> do you smell like an old shoe shop? Do you want to smell like lavender smell. or something nice? Or citrus deliciousness or like a refreshing mint, maybe? Ooh, a uh, mocha mint. Ooh, uh... Earl Grey tea. Yeah, it smells so good. You should check out Humblebee Herbal's line of soaps. They have such wonderful soaps that are nourishing to your skin and very soothing during this time when we're washing our hands all the time. And they're really good if you're like gardening and all of that. They're really good at getting like gunk or like sticky resin off your fingers. I use that soap and it's just like you wash it and it just comes off like super easily. You don't have to scrub or anything. Yeah. Check out Humblebee Herbal and their wonderful soaps. That's humblebeeherbal.com. That's good. All right. He said, the only thing that makes any sense to me is that someone came into my shop, picked picked up my prints, and placed them on the door by reversing some tape or something. Okay. So they go into a shop. They like find they like dust for prints. Then they use their adhesive tape. Adhesive tape. Adhesive Remember, tape. guys, make sure it's adhesive. You gotta make sure it's got that adhesive. Then he's they stick it down. They lift his prints, mm-hmm. take it into someone else's house, you know, do horrible things, and then stick that the fingerprints. It's, I mean, it's the only logical explanation because he was napping. Mm-hmm. That's right. That was his nap time. So his regularly scheduled nap time. And look, he doesn't okay. remember going into any of those homes. Right, so someone breaks into his cobbler shop in the few hours that he's not there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Steals his prints, and then, yes. not only that, but they go, yeah. ransack a house, steal a bunch of jewelry, mm-hmm. and plant it in oh, his and his mother's right. house. Yes, they'd have to go so, back to his mom's house. Clearly someone's out it. to get him. Yeah, obviously. The prosecutor... And they do this, like, multiple times, yeah, so... multiple <laughs> times. In, in different states. <laughs> The, the prosecutor did not cross-examine him much, but did ask Why him... Why would you? But did ask him about the ventilation in his home. As a parting question, Zimmerman also asked, What kind of butterfly were you? <laughs> this was meant to show the jury the nature of the faking. If one, if one was a butterfly over nine centuries, one would presumably know what kind. Yeah. Callinger did not have a quick comeback. He just said, oh, no particular kind. (laughs) I mean, here's the thing, though. If you are a butterfly, you wouldn't know what kind of butterfly you are. Yeah. You don't have butterfly mirrors. Yeah. Are you looking in a mirror and then being like, oh, I'm the blue morpho? Also, also, all the butterfly, like, uh, 
species or yeah. kinds are, are human made. Yeah, that's yeah. So we would have been way better. Man, I could have been his def- def- objection. I was, was going to say I could have been his offense attorney. <laughs> <laughs> Much offense taken. Objection, your objection. honor. Objection. That's ridiculous. Butterflies, butterflies don't clearly don't. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Have you ever been to a butterfly home? Look, he was over 900 like Butterflies. You expect him to remember what he was? Ugh, ridiculous. You think he'd come back to the same butterfly every time? That's insane. No, that's ridiculous. Insanity. Insanity. I say <laughs> that the par- prosecution is insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprisingly, the jury took less than an hour to find him guilty. Oh, what? He asked the court for mercy. The judge no. simply told Callinger that he was an evil man who did not... No who had not only treated his victims badly, but had told one that he would return to get her. Ew. That's fucked. Um, And, oh, and to corrupt your own son is vile and depraved, the judge said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He viewed the defendant as violent and dangerous and sentenced him to not less than 30 and not more than 80 years in the State Correctional Institution at Rockview. Pre- so this is just for the robbery. Right. And the horrible things he did to those four women. Right. Okay. Preparations to extradite him to New Jersey for his murder trial were already underway. He awaited this in Huntingdon, Huntingdon State Correctional Institution. I'm kind of surprised they even did it, because he's clearly going to be in prison for ever, but they're... Well, I think they wanted all their all the victims to get their time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Callinger began to realize that he had to do something more drastic to bring attention to his mental illness. Oh my god! Whereas oh, he had no. not acted, whereas he had not acted out in his jail cell before, he uh-huh. started up now. Yeah. He he threw excrement at guards, stopped yes. up his toilet to keep Charlie from getting him. Placed uh, Charlie comes through the toilet. Apparently. Okay. <laughs> He placed cups of water under his bed and mixed his urine with plum juice and orange juice to pass it off as evidence he was ill. So he was drinking his own pee to get sick. What's with the water under the bed? I don't know. Okay. The (laughs) the consulting uh, psychiatrist there who observed him each day believed he was faking. (laughs) Very astute. (laughs) Uh Dr. Hume went in to do another evaluation for competency and came to the same conclusion. Conclusion: Joseph Callinger was not mentally ill. He was yeah. trying to impress people with symptoms he simply did not have. In mm. fact, now that he had been observed for 28 hours at the trial, he thought that Callinger was clear-headed enough to consult with his attorney and to be in touch with reality. Do he... you think the Charlie thing was made up for the insanity plea? I think so. Okay. He was a manipulator. Yeah. Then Callinger's new defense attorney, Paul Giblin, for the New Jersey trial, hired Dr. Irwin Purs from Rutgers University Medical School. Purs spent 14 hours interviewing Callinger <laughs> and decided that he was schizophrenic. Fuck. He had, so he had seen the reports of Hume and others who had close contact with Callinger, but thought that the man evidenced certain borderline symptoms of psychosis mm-hmm. yet he also admitted that much of the behavior was not in keeping with psychosis 
much of the behavior has had a game playing quality. Interesting. He noted that Callenger seemed to enjoy perplexing people who were interviewing him. Uh huh. Nevertheless, Purse concluded that Callenger did not appreciate the nature of his actions and was eligible for the insanity defense. Uh. From it prison. It does sound like antisocial personality disorder if he is just making up, like, all this other shit just to get attention and to fuck with people, basically. I mean, I think we both agree something's not right. Well, clearly something's wrong, terribly wrong. Yeah. His mental health is not good. Yeah. <laughs> From prison, while awaiting his murder trial, he sent a letter to Professor Flora Retta Schrieber. At the time, she was teaching English and speech at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in Manhattan and had authored one other book, the best-selling nonfiction book about Sybil, the woman with 16 <gasps> personalities. Oh. No one then realized that much, that much would happen after Sybil's diagnosis would place in doubt many people involved in the case and in the multiple personality syndrome movement it inspired. Hmm. To give some background, before the 1973 book, there were around 50 known cases throughout the history of psychiatry. Yeah. During the two decades following it, more than 40,000 people <laughs> had been diagnosed. No. This was a perplexing increase. Uh, um, yeah, because it's not real. <laughs> a movement sprang up and many therapists made a living at specializing in multiple personality disorder. Oh my god. No, it's a very, very rare thing. Many of these alters were induced with hypnosis. Uh -huh. And once people realized that their quote unquote recovered memories weren't accurate, quite a few specialists in multiple personality disorder were successfully sued. Yeah. Well, if you go to see someone who specializes in multiple personality disorder, you're probably going to think that you have a multiple personality or else why would you go see them? Of course. You know? And then they're going to be like, oh, I found one. And you're like, I knew it. I knew there was I one knew there. It. <laughs> There's got to be more. <laughs> then Dr. Herbert Spiegel spoke up and his revolution eroded the movement's foundation. He yeah. had taken over Sybil's care while her regular psychiatrist, Dr. Cornelia Wilbur, was on vacation. He told, the, <laughs> he told the New Yorker that Sybil was not a genuine case, but was merely an impressionable patient with other problems. While he was yeah. with her, he asked, she asked him if he wanted her to be Helen. She told him that's what Dr. Wilbur would want. He then told her just to be herself, and she seemed relieved. Aww. He thought she had been coached and had yielded to it. Yeah. In Spiegel's presence... She had shown disassociative characteristics and an ability to enter into a hypnotic trance. But he had seen no evidence during his sessions that her, uh, with her of, of a single one besides her own mm -hmm. personality. Yeah. Um, although Schrieber was an English professor and not skilled in clinical issues involved in psychosis and malingering, she appeared uh. to be eager to write yet another book about mental illness. Oh, good. Mm, lovely. By this time, from a man who claimed to go in and out of reality. That potentially left her rather vulnerable to manipulation by someone who wanted to use her for his own ends. 
She had prestige, media influence, and she was willing to give part of her earnings to her subject. Uh-oh. At no time in any of the four trials of Joseph Callinger was his son brought to the stand. He was sent to juvenile facility for supervision until he was 21. He did not offer any testimony or ever talk with anyone about what happened. Eventually, he went to a foster home and changed his name. So um, After 21? Yeah. So, which, yeah, I thought, like, that's kind of weird, but I'm, I'm not sure. There wasn't much Unless information. Unless he was, like, unable to take care of himself. So um, I will point out that Schreiber, the mm-hmm. professor, she ended up writing a book, and it you can actually read it. It's called The Shoemaker, and she interviewed Joseph Callinger extensively, mm-hmm. and it's, it's all based on what he says happened. So a lot and of this found stuff- found his altars. So a lot of this stuff that I got was from a woman who wrote, um, she wrote a blog, basically, after she read The Shoemaker. Mm-hmm. So that's where, like, a lot of it came from. So it's, like, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Callinger went on trial in Hackensen, New Jersey, on September 13th, 1976, for the murder of Maria Fashing, and for numerous other charges related, related to his taking of hostages, assault, and theft of property. It yeah. took ni- It took nine days to seat a jury, and then oh, the fuck. trial began. <laughs> Callinger had pleaded not guilty. If the state showed proof of his guilt... Then the plea would change to insanity. While this trial went over much the same territory when addressing the defendant's state of mind, with even more experts on both sides, the prosecution also had the shirt and tie, along with a photograph of Callinger wearing the shirt and tie. They had his son's (laughs) fingerprints on a broken piggy bank. Prosecutor Larry McClure called... All of the witnesses from the Romaine home who had been held hostage and assaulted in various ways, and each person who had assisted with linking Callinger to the discarded bloody shirt. And also, they each got a good look at him. Yeah. During the testimony, Callinger acted out in ways he had not done in his Pennsylvania trials. Oh, good. He swept his arms over his head, kicked his feet, (laughs) chirped. Kept talking and shouting until he was eventually removed from the courtroom. So the Bible reading wasn't getting there enough attention. So you got to start dancing around. (laughs) If he was, if he were truly psychotic, it would have been noted in prison and he would have been medicated. Yeah. It seemed to many like a show, even to members of the jury. Medical men with strong credentials on both sides testified to opposing diagnoses. He, See, he should have stayed in acting. He just, like, was not convincing in his adult life. It could have been confusing, but finally it was up to the jury to decide. There was no doubt that Callinger was involved, but there could be doubt about the degree of his appreciation of his actions. On October 13th, after two hours, they found Callinger guilty. The day yeah. after, the judge sentenced him to life in prison with the possibility of parole. According to Why? some... Of- I don't know, because he's mentally not all there. I don't know. According to some reports, Callinger set fire to his cell in 1977 and was transferred to a mental institution in Trenton, where he stayed for three weeks. How was he able to set fire to his cell? I don't know. Lighting toilet paper on fire? I'm not sure. 
With what? I mean, it's not... <laughs> not Electricity? What would you light on fire, but what would you use to spark a fire? I mean, they have cigarettes and stuff, so matches, a lighter, electricity. So. That's true. Um, what did you MacGyvering fire? Yep. Well, I just read how to make... Uh, I think it's called crackhead soup. It's a prison mm-hmm. specialty where you get your ramen, but because like you're not allowed to have uh, a hot plate in your room that, or in your cell that gets to boiling point, um, what they do is they they take an electrical cord, like cut from something that can you, that you can still plug in a wall. So it's like got the two live wires on one end and and the pluggy part on the other. Uh huh. And they'll take something metal say nail clippers they'll take the nail clippers apart so they have two pieces of metal Uh and they'll attach each side of the live wire to the nail clippers throw it in a pot of water and plug it in oh my god and electrocute the water and it'll start boiling i just feel like it's safer to give them something that will boil water right well i guess they stopped um giving allowing them to have some they they they, they, excuse me they can get hot plates from the commissary but the hot plates only go up to a certain temperature right because at one point when they were allowed to boil people were boiling water and oil and throwing them at guards yeah no i can see that but also using live wires i just i know (laughs) dude prison ingenuity is insane yeah they're pretty clever but i mean just like maybe give them hot plates that go up that high but use like you know don't let everyone get them or you know supervision or i don't know but live wire sounds way more dangerous Uh, i know it's insane okay i read a whole i read a whole blog about some guy that was in prison and learned how to cook (laughs) yeah that's fascinating Uh, because that food is gross yeah so he set his cell on fire, transferred to a mental institution. There he tried to suffocate himself with plastic. Mm. Yet he was also uh or yet he also successfully argued before a judge to be allowed to defend himself in his fourth trial. <gasps> no how? how But he wrote so many letters to the judge and <laughs> set yet another fire that he was removed as his own counsel and appointed the judge someone like, else. Fuck this guy, no. <laughs> That trial lasted two weeks with all the same experts and issues. Among other changes, he was found... Sorry, charges. Among other charges, he was found guilty of armed robbery and breaking and entering. In jail, he expressed... He had expressed repeatedly his desire to kill every person on Earth. Lovely. At one point, he slashed a fellow inmate's throat and poured lighter fluid on himself and torched up. See, why do they have lighter fluid? And... He tried to fry an egg on his head. Nice. With sheer power of thought? I think the lighter fluid. Oh, on the other guy's head? On his own. What the fuck? (laughs) So, same? Uh, I don't know. mm, Next year, he was moved to a hospital for the criminally insane in Waymark, Pennsylvania. Yeah. He tried to kill another prisoner there. He would talk to God, whom he said he'll become after death. Okay. Callinger has expressed remorse, refusing to eat, and attempted suicide. Wow. On March 26th, 1996, the cobbler-turned-killer who terrorized (laughs) New Jersey suburbs 
died of a seizure when he was 59. Wow. And I'm going to read you this poem that he wrote. Okay. To wrap it up. Okay. The, the poem is called The Unicorn in the Garden. Love it already. When I was a little boy, my adoptive parents, Anna and Stefan, killed the unicorn in my garden. Aww. The nightingale died too, and the lilacs and roses perished. I wanted to be an actor, playing the unicorn in my garden. But they Aww. said, you will be a shoemaker like your father. Dump, coughed. If you don't, you will be a bum. So I grew up in my adoptive father's shop, hearing the cutting of leather, smelling the odor of glue, the music, my music, the whirring of machines, idiot's delight, exiled from the street, isolated from the children. I lived among the shoes and knives and hammers, unknown, unwanted, unloved. I learned to shape soles, replace heels, drive nails. My own soul was hidden from me by the shop's dead world. Wow. A robot to their will. I died with the unicorn in my garden. Oh. He wrote that That's September sad. 3rd, 1982. I know. That's true, though. They yeah. fucked him over. Yeah. So. The tossed salad and the scrambled egg. The tossed salad a scrambled egg. The tossed salad. The tossed salad. And the scrambled egg. A scrambled egg. So a tossed salad is someone who clearly knows right from wrong and chooses to do wrong anyway. Right, so the tossed salad has more components. The person is able to com compartmentalize. And a scrambled egg is someone who can't tell right from wrong and they're just completely scrambled. Just one component, one track mind. They're all kinds of mixed up. There's no focus. They're disorganized. Toss salad, scrambled egg. I'm going to say toss salad because it seems like maybe he did know and he was just really fucking with people. But, God, his life sucked. Yeah, that's why, like... At first, when I was reading all this, I was like, scrambled egg, for sure, all the way. Right, he he right. was beaten into insanity. But then the yeah. more I read and the more that his insane acts seemed like he Put was making on. it up, yeah. I was like, toss salad territory. Right. But I do but believe then he that he... like, lost it towards yeah, the end of his I do, life. Yeah, I do yeah. believe that, I mean, with all of the abuse he suffered... Well, he had no regard for human life because no one ever... Regarded for his life. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So he didn't learn that, that yeah. human life had value or... Yeah. I feel yeah. like he wasn't able to mentally grow and emotionally but grow. He all, but the other thing is, though, he also had like a fam two families of his own mm -hmm. that he didn't have to subject them to like all that awfulness. On the other hand, I feel as if he wanted to create a family for himself that, you know, he could be a part of since he never felt like he was part of a family. Yeah, he was alone. But because he was abused so severely, the only way he knows how to reach out to people that he loves is through abuse. Well, and he had attachment issues since he was given up as an infant. Like Right, so he already and doesn't really... An abusive 
Exactly. Um, so so uh, it's a tough one, but I, I, I say I say it's a mix. I I think that he was yeah. a uh, he had a good but portion to bring of your own child with you, like what the fuck? Kill man? your own kid and then have your kill own kid. Kill your come child. And That's create, right. He killed his kid. Create mayhem. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. But because of that, like he I don't know that he knew right from wrong i mean his only friends are his family yeah but he took his kid with him because he knew that kids would be able to get people to open the doors yeah so that's very manipulative yeah Mm. i I would say he's a tossed salad with a heaping of scrambled eggs in the salad yeah maybe he like that story was a fucked from the beginning. I know, right? That sucked, man. <laughs> I could have been better not knowing that had ever happened. <laughs> Absolutely horrible. Awful. Okay. Uh, so. All right. Your turn. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, ours are kind of similar-ish. Really? In that Ooh. mine is the story of Joe Arity. Oh, another Joe. Joes. But he is not a Joseph. He's just a Joe. What? So, yeah, his parents just named him Joe. So I don't I think got that my... that's legal. <laughs> I got my sources. I got my information from Forgotten History, mm. an article by Matthew Jarrett. There's a website called Friends of Joe Arity and uh, Westworld.com. There's an article by Alan Pentergast. And I only did three because it was already, like, getting kind of long. And I think that I, like, looked at other articles, and they basically just, like, reiterated what was from these websites. Okay. So, here we go. Joe Arity was born in Pueblo, Colorado on April 29th, 1915. His parents, Henry and Mary, were Syrian immigrants who came to the U.S. in 1909. They didn't speak a word of English. Henry worked for the Colorado Fuel and Iron Works, and they lived in company housing. So, you know, mm-hmm. back in the day, these big yep. companies had, like, basically, like, shacks. And then well, you basically yep. owe your whole life to these companies. Right. So, once Joe entered the first grade, it was clear that he had some mental difficulties. Uh-oh. He was unable to keep up with the other kids. So, when he started second grade, the principal asked his parents just to keep him home. And they're like, what? Mm, this isn't going to work. You should just yeah. keep him in your little shack. Yeah, they're like, he's not keeping up with the other kids. And it wasn't it wasn't clear at first that there was anything like wrong until obviously he was with other kids his age and they were trying to learn. But you don't ask a kid just to stay home. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, because like, what are the parents going to do? It's not like they're... Um, educators. Yeah, they can't teach him. For the next three years, he stayed home and played. What other, what any okay, kid yeah. would do. Like, sweet, I don't have to go to school, I just get to stay here and play? Yeah. In 1923, Joe's parents had another son named George, and in 1924, they had a daughter named Amelia. So now they had three young children. They're very, it's like... Some people say that Henry quit his job. Some people say that he lost his job. Mm. And then he became a bootlegger. This led to Henry being in and out of jail. Hmm. So Joe was left unsupervised a lot because he's living with his mom. I wonder if that means that they had to move somewhere else then because they're not. Yeah, 
Probably. They're not working there, so they don't get the free housing. Well, it wasn't, I don't think it was free. I think you had to pay rent to the company. Oh, okay. And then you never got, yeah, and then you go to the store where you buy, like, overpriced things, and then you're just, like, always in debt to the company, basically, is my understanding of company housing. Ugh. Which is, like, what's going to happen now that Amazon is building housing and Google is building <laughs> housing and all that. You're basically going to be in debt to your employer forever. So, let's see. Joe was left unsupervised a lot because his mom oftentimes was the only one home because the dad was either, like, out bootlegging or he was in jail. So, she has, like, three little kids to raise and Joe couldn't be in school. So, what are you going to do? The other two were in school. Or they were yeah, I think so. Or they were, like, too young. Yeah, okay. So he was really quiet and introverted. He really kept to himself. He spent a lot of his time just wandering around town. Because what else are you going to do? Yeah, I'm sure at one point, at some point, just staying in your home is not going to cut it. <laughs> no, he's, so he's just, like, yeah. Bored. I mean, he's probably, like, bored playing at home, so he's going to go wander around and play outside. Mm-hmm. Henry got frustrated because he didn't know what to do with Joe. He was unable to control him, and the neighbors didn't like him or the fact that he just wandered around. Probably thought he they was, like, thought creepy. Of him, they thought of him as a pariah. Mm. Wonderful neighbors. Yeah, well, because you're, you're from an immigrant family. Yeah. You're probably poor, and, like, you probably didn't have, you know, probably it was dirty and wandering around. And they know, like, oh, he's the kid that, could, that wasn't able to stay in school because, like, I'm sure they all have children that... Around yeah, I mean, even like... when kids are in school and he's wandering around town and everyone else is in school, you're kind of like, right. what's going on? This kid's, like, never going to be make anything of himself because he's not in school and, like, I don't yeah. know, fucking weird stuff. Yeah. And plus, back then and for, like, a while, they had, like, this huge thing about people with, like, intellectual difficulties or, like, people who were, like, different and then they just, like, hated you and wanted you to lo- be locked up so they didn't have to, like, look at you or interact right. with you or, you know, they had, like, this whole thing. So the neighborhood kids bullied him, and Henry was just like, he just didn't know what to do, so he sought advice from the neighbors, and the neighbors, who all hated Joe, they kindly suggested that he, they ha- that he have Joe committed. Mm-hmm. So with the help of the neighbors who wrote petitions, he did just that. He had the Pueblo District Court detain him at the Colorado State Home and Training School for Mental Defectives at Grand Junction. Oh my gosh, this which poor Which is basically, guy. yeah, an insane asylum. And he's, so far as we can tell, he's just a little slow, but he's not, like, insane so far. Right. While Joe was committed, he underwent some tests, one of which oh, no. was an IQ test, and they found that he had an IQ of 46. So in other words, Whoa, he had 46. the IQ of a six-year-old, but wow. also he was taken out of school at six. So uh, did he have a chance to like develop a higher IQ? Not really. And if he's just wandering around town by himself, yeah. he's not yeah. interacting and communicating yes. with people. And too. the people who he's interacting with are probably like his younger brother and sister who are like way younger. Mm-hmm. He has like no opportunity to learn or grow. And his dad is always in jail or, or yeah. out bootlegging, so he's not learning from that. And his yeah. mom is probably overwhelmed with the other two. Yes. Yes. So they also found that Joe usually spoke in two and three word sentences. He was not able to repeat four digits. He remained extremely shy and passive. Holy shit. He said that the color red was black, yellow was yellow, blue was green, and green was blue. He so sat silently when asked to tell the difference between a fly and a butterfly, a stone and an egg, as well as wood and glass. He also sat silently when he was asked to name the days of the week. 
He never initiated any moves on his own. He only tried to respond to the leading of the examiner. Joe was extremely concrete in his thinking and totally unable to think abstractly about anything. Huh. They also found him to be very passive, a follower, and eager to please. So he's just like the mind of like a little kid. Yeah. Then, nine months after he'd been committed, Henry began having second thoughts. He missed his son and wanted him back home. So he petitioned the judge and had Joe returned home, which is nice because that's where he belongs. Yeah. Once again, Joe was unsupervised and began wandering around. Now, here's where it gets even worse. Uh In September 1929, Joe was 14. He was cornered by a group of boys and was raped. Oh, no. A police officer or probation officer, I'm not sure which, Mm -hmm. happened to walk by when this was happening and caught the boys. And in one article, it said something like, oh, they made him do things to them. And he was like, no, he was being, like, assaulted. Yeah, what? The police officer or probation officer then wrote a note to the home that he was committed to before. The insane asylum, basically. Uh And it said, I picked him up this morning for allowing some of the nastiest and dirtiest things done to him that I have ever heard of. Allowing? Yeah. The boy (laughs) must be returned. The people of the neighborhood are indignant as they are afraid of the boy and think he never should have been turned loose. Like the sweetest kid. So they're blaming him. Yeah. He... If he wasn't so weird and creepy and mm-hmm. awkward... And didn't scare and people... didn't scare people... Because he's wandering around town. Like, what Scaring the fuck? people into getting raping him? Like, what? I don't... No, I think he's just scaring the neighbors in that he's, like, different and they're, like, afraid of him. Where it's like, if so you just like, talk to you him... Know what we should, you know what I always do whenever I'm afraid of someone? I go and sexually molest them. That well, get it. That will fix the problem. This was like a. They said it was like either a gang or like a group of boys. Yeah, that's the same that with the story it. that so, I told. It was like a gang of roving teens. And yeah, so they had just, like gangs of yeah, roving teens. Yeah, apparently. So the letter did not mention much of the other boys, like you astutely pointed out. <laughs> though there was a separate letter written to a local law enforcement agency about them, and it's unknown whether much of came of it. So maybe they wrote something that was like, hey, these kids were, like, misbehaving, but really we need to get this, like, poor kid who was assaulted. We need to lock him up. Like, okay. Yeah, because he allowed dirty, dirty things to happen to him. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Joe Joe was taken back to the asylum and put in a special ward for sexual deviance. What? So basically this kid who is 14 but has, like, the mind of a six-year-old is in a ward for sexual deviance. Okay. So, and I'm sure that there's like, I'm assuming it's like an overrun uh, or not like a overcrowded institution where they're just kind of letting these people out and about doing their thing. Well, who knows what? Who knows who's going to be in that ward though? Really, like, what is a sexual deviant in the early twenties? Actually, that's true. It was probably the fun room with just like gay people and like. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like, I don't, yeah, I don't know who's in there, but it's probably a weird mix, I'm sure. So, uh, on this ward, the staff were trained to watch for and stop perverse activity, in particular, the act of masturbation. (gasps) Not (laughs) masturbators! So, during Joe's entire time in the ward, he was never given... Permission to masturbate? (laughs) No, no, he never had a single incident in his file about sexual activity. 
Because he's a child. Like, and he didn't belong there. The, the time he quote-unquote acted out in it, it was yeah. other people attacking him. Yeah, yeah. So, so dumb. So next to the asylum, there happened to be railroad tracks. So it was not uncommon for patients to escape by train. They would just, like, leave their, like, work or whatever they were doing and just hop the like, train. They're just going out for a smoke. Don't worry. Yeah. Just be they right just, back. like, walked the tracks. Like, hop a train. <laughs> so on August 9th, 1936, Joe and three other patients escaped and hopped a train headed to Pueblo. When they got into Pueblo, the other three patients went to town and Joe stayed at the train yard. He just wandered around and then the others got back and found him and then they got on another train back to Grand Junction. They, what? They just went out for the day? Yeah, they just went out exploring just to see what it was like. And then they probably were kind of like, well, what are we doing here? And they're like, I don't know. We might as well go back. I'm like, I'm hungry. Where are we going to get food? Yeah. Oh, they're going to serve dinner soon. We should go home. Yeah, I think they just did it for like adventure, mm-hmm. you know. And Joey just like hung out. Well, he, yeah, he's out like, with oh, trains. He's like, I guess oh. this is like where we're going to the train station. Like, what a fun adventure. Now we're going to look at trains. I don't know. So... Uh, on August 12th, they returned to the asylum, all except for Joe. Uh-oh. He didn't go back. No one knows what he did for the next eight days. He didn't remember, and no one reported seeing seeing him. Where are you at, Joe Joe? I know. On August 20th, he showed up in the rail yards of Cheyenne, Wyoming. While he was there, he met Mr. and Mrs. Glenn Gibson. They were in charge of the kitchen car on the train. And Joe told them he would work for food. Hmm. They let him wash dishes for them, and that's just what he did for the next several days. Just the train on the train, just riding on the train, working. Yeah, just helping out in the kitchen car, and yeah. Okay, I mean, food, hanging out. I mean, the fact that he was able to figure out, okay, I can't just steal the food. I got to do something. Yeah. And I need food to live. I don't really care yeah. about money right now. He's like, I'm, I'm just... hungry. Go to the train car and be like, hey, can I work for some food? And they're like, sure, of course. Huh. Okay. So the train made it to Archer, Wyoming. But because Joe was not an official employee of the railroad, he was not allowed to go farther east because that's where the train was headed. Mm. So on August 26th, Mrs. Gibson drove Joe back to Cheyenne and dropped him off at the rail yard because that's mm. where she found him. Yeah. <laughs> this is your home. <laughs> <laughs> this po- And he's just going along with it because he doesn't. Yeah. He's just like, okay, sure. Fine, whatever. Yeah. So soon after he got to Cheyenne, he was arrested by the railroad detectives for vagrancy. What? And he was working. Well, no, because then she dropped him off and he was probably wandering oh, around like, I don't know right. where to go. I don't this know where I am. where I live now. Yeah. Uh-huh. Maybe I'll get on another train. Maybe I'll just hang out until something happens. So, Well, he... like you said, when he when he was little and the, the people were interviewing him and trying to figure out what was wrong with him, he was waiting for people to tell him what to do. He didn't yes. make up things on his own. So he's probably yeah. there waiting for like the boys to come back or someone from the home to come or his parents to come and tell him. Or Mrs. Gibson to be like, yeah. oh, you should go here or go yeah. here. Let me take you back to the asylum or let me take you back home or, right. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was transferred to Laramie County Sheriff George J. Carroll. George Carroll was a highly experienced lawman. He was persuasive, he knew how to work people, and he loved the press and was loved by the press. Great. I sense he's scummy. He was very trusted. Mm -hmm. And when he asked Joe where he was from, Joe said Pueblo. 
And this piqued the lawman's interest. So there's oh. this whole backstory about him, and he, like, I didn't go into it because he just sounds like a, a douche, but he, like, broke up some gangs or something. Or there's, like, a famous gang back in the day, and he, like, arre- oh, he, like, arrested Ma Barker or whatever from, like, the Barker gang or whatever the fuck. I don't know. But anyway, he, like, uh-huh. he was, like, obviously a media whore. Right. He's, like, always trying to get in the, I don't know. Anyway, so. Here's why uh, Carol was so interested that Joe is from Pueblo. Okay. On August 2nd, 1936, a week before Joe got onto the train leaving Grand Junction. So he's still in the asylum at this point. Uh-huh. Mrs. R.O. McMurtry, she was 58, and her aunt Sally Crumpley, 72, were sleeping in their home in Pueblo when someone broke in. The two were viciously attacked with a hammer, and Sally Crumpley died from skull fractures. Shit. I made fun of her last name. Yeah, you did. Sorry, Mrs. Crumpley. But it's such a good last name. It's such a good last name. (laughs) Mrs. McMurtry survived. Thirteen days later, on August fifteenth, my birthday. <gasps> another coincidence. Oh my god! Oh. I think not. Uh, <laughs> only th- okay. Shit. This is tragic, though. This is oh. okay. <laughs> only no need to get excited. Okay. Nope. Only three blocks away from the first crime, Dorothy Drain, fifteen, and her sister Barbara, twelve, were attacked in a similar manner. Oh shit. Roughly the same time of night as the previous attack, the two were sleeping while their parents attended a charity dance. The intruder oh, no. entered the home and attacked both with a hatchet, then raped Dorothy. Oh, no. Dorothy died during the attack oh, when no. the hatchet entered her brain. No! Her sister Barbara survived but was left in a coma. Oh, no. The police believed the crimes were related since they shared many similarities yeah. and a $1,000 reward was put up for the capture of the perpetrator. Known and suspected sex criminals from all over the Southwest were rounded up and questioned. Officials took the crime so seriously that a man who escaped the Pueblo State Hospital was shot to death while resisting arrest. <gasps> Where it's like, was he resisting or were they just kind of uh, dicks? I or, don't know. And he's like at a state hospital and someone's just pulling a gun at you. Uh, you might want to scream and run. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Or maybe, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, so remember that Joe also had a record for perverse sexual behavior. <gasps> oh, because he was raped. That's yeah. right. And what he, the fuck is wrong with our laws and society? I and he also everything. had escaped from an asylum. Ugh, oh, God. I hate it. I hate everything about our society. Oh, it's so much worse. Okay. George Carroll's eyes lit up, and he interrogated Joe. Mm. Carroll called Chief Arthur Grady in Pueblo, who was a friend of his, oh, good. and told him, we are holding a fellow here who says he killed the little drain girl in your city. <gasps> What? Going on to say, he's a nut. He can't even read or write. And he's told us two or three different stories. But he seems to know all about the drain murder. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's the man you want. Oh, so he's my God. Told he's made two that shit up. Or three different stories. Like, clearly, he's just trying to please this guy, right? He has no idea. You don't idea make up multiple stories. No. And he's always eager to please, as they said when he was, like, locked up the first time and they did the test, that he's, like, really eager to please people. He's led easily. And I'm sure it makes life a lot easier, too, in the asylum just to go, like, go along with what they're saying, like, agree, make things easier. Well, his whole life, that's what he does. Right. Yeah. And this, like, 
He's a nut. He can't even read or write. Like, you're taking advantage of this kid. Okay, so. Oh, gosh. Cops suck. Chief Grady was surprised upon hearing this and later recounting that he almost dropped the phone when Carol first told him since he thought he already had the perpetrator. Uh... For the past six days, Grady had been holding a man named Frank Aguilar and was trying to coax a confession out of him. Aguilar was a 35-year-old Mexican native who had been hired and fired by Riley Drain, the two mm. girls' father. Aguilar was a, suspect, was a suspect since he had shown up to Dorothy Drain's funeral despite being fired and was acting suspicious during the service. Not bothering with a warrant, the police searched Aguilar's home and found a hatchet with nicks in it that the coroner believed matched the cuts in Dorothy Drain's head. Grady had evidence, but no confession, while Carol had a confession with no evidence. Oh, my God. Over the next three hours, Carol and Grady were back and forth on the phone. It was apparent that Joe knew details of the crime, although the only record we have of their conversation was Carol's recollection of it. Yeah. He didn't write anything down. He didn't take any notes. He was just like, oh, I could be trusted to, like, tell you what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's on the phone (sighs) with Grady, who's a friend of his, probably getting information about the drain case and feeding it to Joe. And Joe's just, like, telling him back what he's saying. He's like, oh, you want me to say that, like, this happened and then I can go? Okay. He's probably like, like, oh, and then you went to the drain's house, didn't you? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, what did you do there? Did you hurt them? And he's like, yeah. You know, like, le- like this yeah, dude just sucks. whatever okay. you want me to say, I'll agree to you. Even though they already have someone in fucking custody and they have that evidence. <sighs> and it's connected. Anyway. So, Carol convinced Grady that Joe was who they were looking for. So, Pueblo ah. County District Attorney French Taylor and two detectives traveled to Cheyenne to pick him up. As soon as Carol could come up with a good narrative, he went to the press with his story. Even before, so Grady was being, like, very careful with, you know, going to the press and, like, saying that he caught someone and all that. Carol immediately went to the press. Uh. And even before um, D.A. Taylor and the detectives arrived, he announced that he had a confession for the drain case. Yeah, of course. This guy that loves the limelight is like, check it out, guys. I caught your guy over Mm -hmm. here and you didn't even know. And you've got someone else that's not the right one. So Carol participated in an extensive interview with the Pueblo chieftain, and news about Joe was spread all over. Carol even told the paper that Joe committed the act just for meanness and gave the paper false details about the crime. Oh, no. Later, he went back to correct these mistakes, but no one ever asked or called him on them. He was just able to say whatever the fuck he wanted, and the press printed it, basically. Just for me, Joe doesn't have a mean bone in his body. Like, this kid, like, oh, God. Joe was soon taken to Pueblo without either side bothering with official extradition. Carol gave the papers a a detailed account of how he made Joe confess. Oh, no. Playing on the sexual deviant theme, he told them that the only thing he could get Joe to talk about was women. What? (laughs) Joe... This person with the mind of a six-year-old. And his yeah. supposed sexual deviancy was with 
dudes. Yeah, also, he was raped, but... Exactly, exactly. Bottom line, he was uh, a mentally slow guy who was friendly as fuck and was raped and is now in an asylum and then is now arrested for the murder and rape. A horrific murder. Two murders and rape and... uh, Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. So, while the investigation continued, the Pueblo police conveniently found a witness who placed Joe in town at the time of the murders. A pawnbroker named Saul Khan claimed that he sold a cheap pistol to a man named Joseph Arity, not Joe Arity. Like I said before, Joe was his actual name. So, why would Joe tell the pawnbroker that his name was Joseph? Yeah. When he knows his name is Joe. And he thinks in black and white thinking he's not going to yeah. make up that his name yeah. is something else. Yes. Another issue with Khan's story is that Joe never had any money. And he couldn't count. So how is he supposed to, like, count out this fake money, like, no money, and the gun was never recovered? Also, I don't yeah. think that a gun was even used in the crimes. It was, like, a hatchet and a hammer or something. And, I mean, they probably don't know this, but, like, the whole I'll work for food thing is, like, mm-hmm. the exact opposite. Like, he could have, if he was so violent like that, he could have, like, held them at knife point or, like, threatened them or, like, just, mm-hmm. you know, stolen something and jumped off the train at the next stop. You know, like, anything other than, oh, I'm hungry. Let me work for food. Well, also, it wasn't like he was working for money to buy his own food or it wasn't right. like he, like, got a job there to make money to buy like no he was like okay i need food this is how i get it i'm sure that at the asylum too it was like you know you had chores or whatever you do your thing yeah probably oh god so unfortunately the connection between frank the man with the actual evidence linking him to the crime (laughs) and joe was made stronger when they met in chief grady's office and joe blurted out that's frank (gasps) Joe was, of course, very impressionable and just wanted to please. They'd probably shown him a picture of Frank, right? They're probably yeah. like, oh, you know, this guy is Frank, right? And then Joe was probably like, okay, yeah, that's Frank. And then he saw him in person. He's all excited. Like, He's like, Frank. I saw your picture. That's Frank. I can make the connection. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Joe even admitted to the other two crimes that would have been impossible for him to commit since he was still in the asylum when they occurred. <sighs> So this should have obviously set off huge red flags for the detectives. Yes, as in but, he is not able to tell us the truth. He or he or not the truth. He's he is unable to commit these crimes because yeah. of just even the evidence of where he was. And if this is yeah. a state-run hospital, there's got to be logs of him like getting in there and mm-hmm. leaving. Yeah, being there. Yeah. So. I don't really understand this part, but it said they were eager to pin Frank for the crimes and they needed Joe to help. But they had the evidence. So I, just because they didn't have a confession, like, I don't think they needed Joe. Mm-hmm. They just wanted. I, I don't know. I don't know why him. they went after him. So I'm thinking that I think that Carol wanted to get the um, he wanted to get like the accolades for catching right. this like serial killer like triple murder or whatever and i read somewhere else i don't know if i included it in here but that he got the thousand dollars oh the reward for wow. finding yeah wow yeah which i don't think lawmen should get the reward like no. fuck you guys okay yeah so <laughs> fuck you for guys. the next five days frank aguilar stood up to interrogation and refused to confess to confess confess <laughs> you must confess <laughs> confessed to any of the crimes. 
However, on September 2nd, 15 days after his arrest, Aguilar finally confessed. Unlike Joe's confession that was only taken by Sheriff Carroll, Franks mm-hmm. was taken down by an actual court reporter. <laughs> oh. Aguilar admitted that on the night of the rape and murder, he overheard the, that Riley Drain and his wife would not be home that evening. He went to their house and watched them leave before entering the home and committing the crime. Whenever D.A. Taylor asked about Joe, Aguilar worked him into the story, but he never mentioned Joe without being asked. So, for mm-hmm. example, Taylor asked, then Joe assaulted the big girl, didn't he? And Frank answered with a simple yes. Taylor asked, after Joe got through assaulting the girl, what did you do to her? And Frank responded with, I hit her. Aguilar told police that they split up after committing the crime and never saw each other again until now. But it's like, when would they they have ever met? Yeah, so they never met before. They randomly both are like, we are going to kill these people who I have a beef with. Yeah. Uh, and also how rude the big girl like what the fuck what's wrong with you and like why are you trying to tie him into this like what is the point it's so fucking dumb i don't know maybe you're finally getting a confession do you think he he thought that he could get some kind of deal if he helped them catch this other guy too i don't think no i don't think like with for aguilar like i don't he's finally so the thing about this is yeah they found that evidence and everything but i'm kind of wondering like did they frame him too because he wasn't linked with the other two that were murdered he's like a mexican immigrant or mexican native like i'm kind of suspicious about this whole thing too personally but well i'm just saying like i i just don't believe the law enforcement out there because of this like if this is how he conducts himself just making shit up and trying to pass himself off as the the good guy who caught someone bad yeah, Carol, and then his friend over in Pueblo, who like, who's like, oh, I found like a worker that you fired and is mad at you, and he happens to be Mexican. Like, yeah, you know, I don't know. Exactly. I feel like I feel like the whole thing is super sketchy, and I feel like the the crime because they don't really talk about the other the other crime with the the older woman. Or wait, okay, no, I might get to that a little bit later. Okay. Anyway, so I don't. I don't know that they mm. caught either of the right people. Like maybe it was maybe it was like a serial killer kind of I don't know. Because that would make See that's the only way that it would make sense if this guy is trying to put Joe in in the house too. Yeah. Cuz it's like why like you said why would you do that? It, yeah. You, you would both get death sentences if you were convicted or not. Yeah, so why life, life sentences. So why would having him there alleviate that unless right. you didn't do it either and you're so you're making it all sure, up too because you're you've been broken down so much that you're just like yeah. oh yeah 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 now yeah sure he was there yeah he was there what else you it's easier to, to like add yeah, it yeah. And, and there was a clown making balloon animals too of course yeah of course. yes yeah so i don't know i don't know so frank's story went like this He said he met Joe by chance and found out that Joe was a sexual deviant, (laughs) which (laughs) Joe speaks in like two word or three word responses. And I'm sure deviant isn't in his vocabulary. First of all, he would never consider himself a sexual deviant, right? Like, no, he didn't even do anything. Furthest thing from his mind. He didn't even do anything. Yeah, I don't know. So Frank told Joe about the crime he was planning to commit and Joe agreed to go along with it. I'm Joe, the sexual deviant. 
oh, I'm a sexual deviant too. I'm going to like be a deviant over at this house. Do you want to come with me? And then we'll never see each other again. Yeah, let's Mm -hmm. go have some fun. Yeah, let's go deviate from the norm together. Sexually. One night only. (laughs) So Frank told Joe about the crime. Oh, yeah, yeah, I said that. Okay. So Joe obviously agreed to go along with it because this totally happened. Uh They sat hidden outside the Drain's house and watched for Mr. and Mrs. Drain to leave. After the couple left, they waited 10 to 15 minutes for the children to fall asleep. They broke into the home, found the girl's bedroom, and hit Dorothy several times with a hatchet before Frank started to rape her. In the middle of raping Dorothy, Barbara woke up and yelled at them to get out. Frank hit Barbara with the blunt end of the hatchet, knocking her out. He continued with Dorothy, and once he was done, Joe raped her. Once Joe was done, Frank hit Dorothy again with the hatchet, though she was likely already dead, and they left the house. They split up never to see each other again, and, of course, Joe being his agreeable self, he confirmed the story. So he's saying that he used the wrong side of the hatchet, but somehow she had, like, damage to the brain with... I don't know. And then I just feel like... So Frank is like, oh, yeah, I'm, like, doing... I'm doing everything and in the I'm, scene. I mean, and Joe, like, raped the one woman and then we all left. It's like... I don't know. I'm not a woodsman or anything, but I feel like a hatchet... It's yeah. already like it's it's a lot heavier on the side with the metal, the actual yeah. hacking part. So right. if you're grabbing that, trying to hit someone, I mean, I guess you could. It would just be like hitting them with a stick. But yeah. I just find it like, why wouldn't you just use the blunt side of the axe if you were trying to? It just doesn't. Sa- it sounds made up. Yeah. No I don't one know. grabs their hatchet like that. I don't know. On December fifteenth, nineteen thirty-six. Four months to the day of the murder, Frank Aguilar was brought to trial for rape, assault, and murder of Barbara and Dorothy Drain. Wait, that can't be. Barbara wasn't dead. No, no. Uh, I think just... No. Just, for the rape know. and the murder. For the An rape assault of-, of Barbara and... I don't know if he raped Barbara, though. I'm confused. Okay, anyway. He was well, charged with... Was- Rape, the, assault, and murder. The rape and murder of... Dorothy. Dorothy and the assault of... of Barbara. Barbara. Okay, sure. That sounds good. <sighs> he was also charged with the assault and murders of Mrs. R.O. McMurtry and Sally Crumpley. Mm-hmm. The star of the trial was Barbara, Dorothy's little sister, who testified against Frank. She had fully recovered after spending two weeks in a coma and retained her memory of the night. So this is where, I don't know. So Barbara said she woke up and saw the face of a strange man in their room. Mm -hmm. D.A. Taylor asked if she said anything to him, to which she said, I told him to get out. Taylor Mm -hmm. then asked if the man she saw was in the courtroom. She said yes and was then asked to identify the man. Barbara stood up, walked across the courtroom, stopped at the front of Aguilar and pointed at him. D.A. Taylor arrested the prosecution's case after this. So maybe Aguilar did do it. Maybe he was like, maybe, you know, but then a again, murderer. you're woken up in the middle of the night to something horrific happening, and it's, it's dark, dark in your room. Yeah. How do you get a good look at someone? I don't know. And then you're knocked unconscious for two weeks. Yeah, and then you're told, "Oh, we caught the guy that did it." Is yeah. that the guy? Oh yeah, yeah that looks like he could know. be the guy. That doesn't yeah. make sense either. There's no, there's no fingerprints or like other physical evidence besides like her testimony and, and what was the other one? 
what? Oh, that he worked or that he got fired or whatever. That he got fired. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, initially, when I was first reading this, initially, I was kind of like, I got that feeling of like, oh, I don't think that they have either of the right yeah. guys. But then it's like, maybe, maybe Aguilar, what, maybe he was. And maybe he thought that like pointing the finger at someone else would kind of like. But maybe, but it also seems like pretty so shoddy. Unscrupulous. Yes. Shoddy police work or like yes. just not enough evidence to convict either. Well, and they find okay, so they find a hatchet in his house. I'm pretty sure like most of the people probably had hatchets, right? Yeah, Back did it in have the day. Blood on it? Did it have It like... had like the dents that they said looked like the same dents. And I oh, guess yeah, if it's right. like in the skull, like maybe you could like yeah. line up the dents, but I I just don't know. I don't know. I'm not a hundred percent convinced. That night, Aguilar admitted to his lawyer that he did commit the murder. The next day, Aguilar's attorney asked if he could change the plea to insanity, but the judge refused. The defense rested their case after this. The jury took little time to deliberate. Some accounts say less than a half hour and came back with a guilty verdict on all counts. Frank was sentenced to death by gas chamber. So I'm wondering if he, like, changed... Because clearly her being, like, he's the one, she walks over to him and points to him. That's Mm -hmm. super damning. So maybe he was like, oh, maybe if I say I'm guilty, then I can get, you know, life in prison as opposed to death. Yeah, right. Make a deal. Or maybe he did do it. I don't know. Maybe he did. But that's the thing. There are some of these cases that we read where it's like... Literally, the the evidence is flimsy. And if I was a juror in court, I couldn't... Like, how do you justify convicting someone with that evidence? Well, because it's all been so... Um, what's the word? Publicized. Yeah, and kind of... Uh, like, it's all very emotional, you know? It's, like, all very sure. big. So then when she stands up and she's like, I was there. It's like the whole eyewitness thing where it's like eyewitness testimony is actually, like, one of the worst... Yeah, it's pieces not, of evidence you can possibly have. Yeah, where it's like, especially, well, I don't know, because in a traumatic situation, like you, you probably are kind of solidifying that whole experience. I don't know, I don't know, but it was, but, it was very like, but, I'm like, sure but, it was like extremely damning having her walk over to him and be like, "This is the one." Then the jury I'm for sure is sure, like, "Yeah." But if I he's were a, a jury member, I would, I, I couldn't say that because I don't believe that eyewitnesses are reliable and it like we said it's dark it's nighttime it's dark things are happening he's already like he's already like stabbing and like on top of this other person so you like you see him in the dark farther away from you because your bet i'm assuming their beds weren't touching well with what we know now too it's like what yeah like you said was there blood on the hatchet Mm -hmm. like nowadays we'd have dna evidence like all kinds of things like it seems everything is circumstantial yeah yeah Ugh, so I don't I like it. I don't like I it one bit. So throughout Aguilar's short trial, no one brought up Joe, surprisingly, and Barbara never said or was asked about a second man. She just saw one man in the room. And it was that guy right there. Yeah. So now we're on to Joe's trial, which why? Why does Joe have a trial? Yeah. They've already I got their understand. guy, according to them. Yeah, and they said... Barbara didn't mention anyone else. Like, what mm-hmm. the fuck? And no, the whole trial didn't talk about Joe once. Like, why are we trying Joe? Joe had a court-appointed attorney named C. Fred Bernard, who worked hard to prove his innocence. Initially, a not guilty plea was entered, but was withdrawn, and instead he pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Which, no, he's not guilty. So, 
Under Colorado law, Joe would now have a separate trial just to determine his sanity and if he could even be fit to be tried for murder. Mm-hmm. In February of 1937, the sanity trial opened up before Pueblo County Judge Harry Letty, and Bernard had a strong case. <laughs> Harry Letty. It sounds like a, like a hairy salad. <laughs> That's gross. (laughs) At D.A. Taylor's request, Joe was examined by three state psychiatrists who all came to the conclusion that Joe was incapable of distinguishing between right and wrong and therefore would be unable to perform any action with a criminal intent. Mm. Their findings were almost word for word the legal definition of insanity. All three psychiatrists testified and told the court how they came to their conclusions. So, if you're the DA, and you're getting three different psychiatrists saying the exact same thing, don't you drop the case? You would hope so. Uh, But our court system and everything is so fucked up. So, Joe testified, being his benevolent self, Mm. Bernard asked Joe 22 simple questions to show that Joe was not sane and did not think the same as others. Mm -hmm. Bernard asked... Do you know what an oath is? Joe answered, no. Who is Franklin Roosevelt? No answer. Have you ever heard of George Washington? No. Do you know what the hearing is about? No. Can you read? Not so good. Can you write? Sure. Can you write anything besides your name? No. (laughs) The questions were all similar to this, and Joe did not know the answer or understand most of them. Mm. Pretty damning. Mm Mm-hmm. Ralph J. Neary, who took over the prosecution from D.A. Taylor, cross-examined Joe and tried to ask questions that showed that Joe knew what was going on around him. Hmm. Also trying to touch on Joe's supposed perverse fantasies. Oh my god, get over it. This guy's got perverse fantasies. Drop it. So Neary said, where are you going tonight, Joe? Back to Grand Junction. Where are you going back to Grand Junction? I like that place. (laughs) Oh, You would want to do that like, let me say, you want to do what you like to do, don't you, Joe? Yes. Oh, no. Do you like girls? Pretty good. And then he smiles. Do you like girls? And he said, pretty good. And smiles. Pretty good. Like, like what? I'm sure if you were like, do you like boys? He'd be like, pretty good. I like people. We're friends. (laughs) They're fine. Whatever. So... After Joe left the stand, Neary called up four lawmen, one of them being Sheriff George Carroll. Yay. Unsurprisingly, Carroll's testimony overshadowed everyone else's as he explained his experience with criminals and how he could tell that Joe understood right from wrong. So they're going to trust this asshole over three psychiatrists and over Joe's own answers to these questions. That's because our country does not believe in mental illness. And they would rather trust some stupid lawman. Well, and this guy has it out for him. Like, heart, he's like, well, I found the guy, so obviously, like, we got to make him. it stick. Where it's like, give it, like, admit that you're wrong and give it up. Like, I hate that whole, like, you can't admit that you were wrong or you can't admit that you made a mistake bullshit that they have. Well, do it's you like, think that if he, if he was found wrong, then he wouldn't get to keep that $1,000 reward? Well, for he sure probably he wouldn't. already spent it. <laughs> 
Well, and he'd have to, like, eat crow. He already went immediately to the fucking press, and then he's going to have to tell the press that he was wrong. No, he's, like, so trusted. He's, like, the best lawman they ever had, the best sheriff. I like how you keep saying lawman. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's back in the day. Lawman. After, After this testimony from Carol, the jury deliberated and found Joe to be legally sane. Therefore, able to be tried for murder, which is why is he able to determine whether or not this person is sane? He is not a psychiatrist. He's not a psychologist. He's not a social worker. He's just an asshole. He shouldn't have been allowed. He shouldn't have been. And then the DAs are fucking assholes, too, because the DA should have been like, okay, well, let's trust the psychiatrist. And after we question him, clearly he's not sane. We're not going to ask anyone else to the stand. We're going to dismiss the case. You would think so in the in yeah. a normal, perfect world. Yeah, dismiss the case. So, after... Do, do, do. Okay. Joe's murder trial began on April 12th, 1937. Attorney Bernard asked that the first jury's verdict be set aside and the new jury be allowed to decide Joe's legal sanity. The judge allowed it. The prosecution still had to prove that Joe was legally sane and that he committed the crime, but it was easier to prove that prove the latter since Bernard asked to revisit the sanity subject. Neary still would not have an easy fight. However, his only witness was Saul Kahn, and the only physical evidence that linked Joe to the crime was hair that was supposedly found at the crime scene. A Denver toxicologist uh, said the hair was Joe's against the odds of 250 to 1. No, which, how? That's impossible. That's impossible. Especially in the 30s. They weren't even using DNA. It's impossible just these literally, days. Yeah, yeah it, do, it doesn't hold up in court these days. Uh-huh. Oh my god. So everyone Bernard, is just lying and out to get him. Yeah, wait, it gets even worse. Bernard shot holes in the evidence as he pointed out that the hair was not recovered from the crime scene until after Joe was arrested. So they know it's his hair, probably because they plucked his hair Mm -hmm. and said they found it at the crime scene. So they Mm -hmm. can for sure argue that chances are it's his hair because they know where it fucking came from. Oh, my God. He argued that if it was Joe's hair, then it was not taken, hair not taken from the scene of the crime, but hair taken directly from Joe after his arrest. Right. So Sheriff Joe Carroll was the star witness. I hate this guy so fucking much. He was a showman and easily manipulated the court. Neary asked Carol to tell about Joe's confession. Detailing it as you can remember it, he said. The sheriff began. <sighs> First, I started off by saying, well, Joe, you like the girls pretty well, don't you? And he said, yes. I said, you have had several girls during your lifetime. And he said, yes. Oh, I no. said, if you like the girls so well, why did you hurt these two girls? And he said, I didn't mean to. He doesn't know what it means to have had several ta- girls in your lifetime. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. He's just, uh, like, affirming whatever uh-huh. this guy's saying just to... And if like, someone okay. was like, oh, man, why did you hurt that dog? He would just be like, I didn't mean to. Because mm-hmm. he doesn't fucking know. Mm-hmm. Fucking Carol. So Carol said... Joe said that he watched the girls from the bushes until a car left and the lights went out. Carol assumed the roles of both himself and Joe, imitating how Joe was talking. This guy is the fucking worst. He's a showman. He's a showman lawman. 
he's a he's a showman lawman. <laughs> what do you expect? Mm-hmm. So he said, "How long did you stay there? Until the light went out. Then did you go into the house when the light went out? No, we waited a little while. What for? To let the girls go to sleep. How long did you wait? Oh, ten or fifteen minutes. Like Joe would not talk like this. He speaks uh-huh. in like two to three word sentences. He wouldn't say oh ten or fifteen minutes. He can't count. Yeah, how would he know he, what ten minutes are? He probably yeah. He doesn't. He probably know how to read a watch or know for sure. How he can't read a watch. Lapse, how long a no. time lapse is? Like he yeah. No concept Ooh. of time. He spent hours wandering around a train yard. Like, yeah. until people came back. Like, he doesn't. And they were like, oh, it's time to go. I was having so much fun wandering yeah. around. Like, okay. So then he said, what did you hear? Oh, what did you do then? We went into the house. How did you get in? We went to the back door, but the back door was locked. Then I went around to the front door. Like, I don't think he would be able to say these no. things. No. Carol recounted how Joe had described striking the girls with the hatchet and continued his verbatim recitation, which reflected Joe's limited vocabulary. When, oh, then what did you do? I got into bed with the girls. Did you have sexual intercourse? I don't know what you mean. <laughs> I says, what did you do to the girls? He says, I screw them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, sure. He doesn't know what sexual intercourse means. He doesn't know what it is. He's like, oh, you mean screwing. Oh, oh, oh. I, um. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Bernard did what he could, but Carol's testimony sealed Joe's fate. Bernard had three psychiatrists testify again that they had not changed their opinion from the last time. He even had a fourth medical doctor, Benjamin Jefferson, who was the superintendent of the institution Joe had lived in. Dr. Jefferson also agreed that Joe was not sane and incapable of his actions. Neary put the lawmen up and again had them explain how Joe knew right from wrong. Why are they the authorities? Why are they the ones to say he knew right from wrong? The doctor at the institution that he was in said he didn't know right from wrong. Mm-hmm. And then these lawmen get up and say, oh, no, he, he knew. And I can because quote verbatim what we ha- talked about, even what? though I didn't record any of it. But I've I seen know. a lot of people confess. And as a lawman. <laughs> I know I've made a lot of people confess. I know how to make someone confess to a crime, whether or not they committed it. I made him confess, and Mm -hmm. I will stand here under oath and say, yes, he confessed Look, he told me me. two or three different stories of how it could have happened, and I believe Mm -hmm. every one of them. And the story is like suspiciously what Frank was told to tell or or told. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So after this, the jury left and returned. So that's the other thing. Like, they didn't even bring him up in Frank's trial. So why Mm -hmm. did they even need him to crawl? Like, this one's so infuriating. (laughs) After this, the jury left and returned after deliberating for three and a half hours to determine if this guy should live or die. They said that Joe was sane and found him guilty of rape and murder. He was sentenced to death by gas chamber. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. The next day, the chieftain reported that Joe took no notice of the pronouncement of the death verdict as delivered by the jury foreman. On. Yeah, he doesn't know what that means. On August 11th, 1937, the chieftain reported that, oh, I did say this. Okay. That the $1,000 reward offered in the drain case had been awarded to Sheriff Carroll <sighs> and the railroad detectives who turned Joe over. So he just, like, gave him some money. 
Wow. Two days later, August 13th, Frank Aguilar was executed. Joe's original execution date was October 16th, 1937, but he was able to receive several stays and the date was moved. Oh the warden God. of the jail... Uh, this poor the guy is just like, uh, I think yeah. I'm going to go back to Grand Junction now. Thanks. Yeah, because I liked it there. No. The warden of the jail that Joe was held at, his name was Warden Best. He helped Joe greatly and even hired an attorney for him. Mm. Best was a tough but fair man. He believed in capital and corporal punishment, but he was also caring and took pity on Joe, seeing that Joe was not what the police and press had made him out to be. Mm. Best hired Gail Ireland, one of the best attorneys of the time, to take over Arity's case. Ireland kept it alive on the insanity issue and tried to move the case out of Pueblo County and away from Judge Letty to a judge in Fremont County, where Canyon City and the penitentiary were located. Yeah, fuck Harry Letty. He's gross. Yeah, he's super gross. He was successful in getting a Fremont judge to assume jurisdiction, but the Colorado Supreme Court ruled the case belonged to Pueblo. Despite the troubles Ireland faced, he was able to establish nine stays to keep Joe alive. Why why isn't this being dropped? It's so ridiculous. Joe spent a year and a half on death row... And it was a joyful time for him. He spent much of it playing and entertaining himself with the never-ending endurance of a child. He would polish his metal food plate and use it as a mirror to talk to himself and make funny faces that he would laugh at. Warden Best gave him children's picture books that contained funny faces, and Joe laughed at them until they fell apart. (laughs) Then Best gave Joe scissors when they fell apart so he could cut the faces out, and he did so while humming peacefully. However, Joe didn't like anything more than the bright red wind-up car with battery-powered headlights and the toy train, a model of the Union Pacific Streamliner, that was given to him by Warden Best and his wife. Joe would scoot the car around his cell, and if it smashed into something or tipped over, he would shout, car wreck, car wreck. He would (laughs) run the train up and down the hallway between the death row cells. The other inmates in his block, all confessed killers, were patient with Joe and would catch his trains when he rolled it in their way. So he would like he would like reach it out the bars and like push the train down and then someone else would catch it and like push it back to him. Like he's literally a child. He's literally a child. And had zero violence ever in his life. And then he, like, apparently killed these people. Raped and murdered. Yeah. Yeah. Best allowed the press to interview and talk to Joe, and they loved him. I went to live here with Warden Best, Joe told one reporter in December 1938. Don't you want to go back to the home in Grand Junction, the reporter asked. No, I want to get a life sentence and stay here with Warden Best. At the home, the kids used to beat me. I never get in trouble here. Oh, no. And he gets toys. And and... he gets to play and other people play with him. But then he's, like, safe and they don't beat him up. Oh, my God. So fucked up. As the execution date neared, a Canyon City reporter wrote that Joe was unaware of the building tension. He sat in his cell making faces in his polished dinner plate. stating that he cannot comprehend the state wants to take his life. On January 5th, 1939, Best asked Joe what he would like for his last meal, to which he replied, ice cream. That same (laughs) evening, Best 
brought Joe a box of cigars and a mountain of homemade candy. He ate so much that his stomach became upset and he gave the rest of it away to other inmates. The next day was his last, and he started it with a short visit from his mother and other family members. His father had died 11 months earlier. When visiting his mother, she collapsed into tears, but Joe didn't understand, and then he returned to his cell. He spent the rest of the day smoking cigars, eating ice cream, and playing with his beloved train. As he was walked to the gas chamber, Joe stopped and gave his train to one of the other inmates. As he did this, he talked about how he would soon be raising chickens and playing the harp, like the Padre told me. Warden Best proclaimed that Joe was the happiest man on death row. So, like, the priest went in to to see him, and he was like, okay, well, instead of your trains, you're going to have a golden harp to play. So he was like, okay, I don't need the train anymore. I'll give it to someone else, like a sweetheart. so fucked up. It's so awful. On January 6th, 1939, Joe Arity was sent to the gas chamber and murdered for a crime he did not commit, that he was incapable of committing. The next day, the daily news headline read, 23-year-old child dies for slaying, and reported that he walked to his death with the faith of a child and grinned as he was strapped into the chair. Joe was buried in the prison cemetery, a spot known as Woodpecker Hill, and a motorcycle plate marked his grave. In the spring of 1992, a friend sent Robert Persky a copy of The Clinic, a long out-of-print poem by an obscure poet about the forgotten execution. It began. The warden wept before... Are you serious? We both had poems in our... (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Just two lines. I did find the whole thing, but I didn't read it. Okay. I'm not going to read it. The warden wept before the lethal beans were dropped that night in the airless room. The poem went on to describe a doomed man who did not weep, but simply played with his toy train. The man you killed tonight, the warden writes, is six years old. He had no idea why he dies. Persky had grown up in South Denver and served as a Navy radio operator in World War II. After the war, he became a Methodist minister and worked for 11 years as a chaplain at the Kansas Neurological Institute, an institution for children with intellectual disabilities. Hmm. As efforts to end the warehouse... The warehousing of the disabled gained Mm -hmm. momentum in the 60s and 70s. Persky became a self-described street court and prison worker, advocating for this vulnerable population's right to live in the community. He also became deeply involved in challenging false confessions from mentally disadvantaged suspects, admitting Mm -hmm. to crimes they had not committed. Wow. So this poem haunted him, and he was just like, was there act like is this based on reality? What is happening here? Mm-hmm. So he tracked down the poet whose name is Marguerite Young. She told him that the poem had been inspired by a newspaper article that she'd read, but she couldn't recall the details. Mm. After some additional sleuthing, he was stunned to discover that the execution had taken place a hundred miles from where he grew up. He had been 11 years old at the time oh. and the lethal beans are cyanide pellets that were put into acid to produce a deadly gas. Persky had to know more. He spent many hours cracking microfilm readers in libraries, (laughs) a dream. 
He studied long shelved court records and commitment papers and unearthed confidential files and notes about Joe's mental status and his life in an institution. The more he read, the less sense it all made. Mm -hmm. There was plenty of evidence in the case, but precious little of it pointed to Joe and nothing was quite what it seemed. Least of all, the so-called confession. In 1995, he published a book that he wrote called Deadly Innocence. Mm -hmm. And he said, all I wanted to do was get the facts down. I'm not a brain. I'm not a great writer. But I've been able to document 75 cases where people with disabilities were coerced into confessing and were convicted. Then found to be innocent. This is the most telling of all the cases I've worked. 75 that he found alone is not okay (laughs) well especially when people are being unscrupulous yes so its publication set a process in motion that would lead to unexpected places there was a screenplay by a trinidad writer about joe's life and death um then a grassroots campaign was set up to clear his name and they la- it was launched by a group calling itself Friends of Joe Arity, where you can find a lot of his like information, a lot of facts about his life. Mm-hmm. And to the first posthumous pardon in Colorado's history issued by Governor Bill Ritter. So on January 7th, 2011, 72 years after his death, wow. Governor Bill Ritter granted Joe a full and unconditional pardon. Ugh. An organization... Oh, too little okay. too late. <laughs> and then the Friends of Joe Arity, they raised money for a new headstone to replace the old rusted license plate with a marble headstone. And the stone contained a picture of Joe playing with his train and chiseled in it are the words, here lies an innocent man. Mm, yeah, what the fuck? What the fuck? I hate that story. It was so awful. Both of our I stories absolutely sucked. hate wrongful convictions. Yes. More than you hate age gap loves. I hate wrongful convictions more than I hate. Well, I'll have to think about that one. <laughs> That's why I hate. Well, I cannot watch those shows on Netflix and stuff where it's like, yes, you know, I've been sitting in prison for 30 years and I'm innocent. I cannot like. Why stand is it that. so hard to clear your name when it's clearly you're clearly yeah. innocent, and you have to go through like all of this crazy? Like, why aren't they just like, okay, well, here are the facts of the case. This person ha- was like a six-year-old, clearly had not a mean bone in his body. Let's just um, drop the fucking case. It's because America, fuck yeah, Ugh, <laughs> fucking awful. The toss salad and the scrambled egg. Tossed salad, a scrambled egg. I think that fucking Carol was the worst piece of shit. I hate him so much. I hate him so much. He's a tossed fucking salad. He's like the fucking worst. I hate him so much. He's, yeah, he is such a tossed salad. I, oh, I just want to go poop on his salad. Yeah, and the fact that, like, maybe maybe the other guy did do it. Maybe he did. But the fact that he was even involved and his friend was involved in, exactly. like, getting confession or getting a conviction, I just question, like, everything that they've ever done. Well, their evidence on both sides were completely flimsy. It was flimsy, yeah. And then they bad just make police up, work. They just make up a big story and get it out in the media so that everyone's read it, even people that are supposed to be unbiased jury, mm-hmm. like, have already seen the story, so they're like, yeah, this guy's a monster. And why is he testifying on sanity? 
Why is he an authority on whether or not someone knows right from wrong? He's a fucking idiot. Disgusting. Ugh. It was disgusting. This one's fucking... This one's awful. Yuck. <sighs> Ooh. So should we do some crime any sakes to kind of lighten the mood? And now for the portion that we like to call crime any sakes, where we tell you silly stories about crime that make you forget the terrible things we just told you. Let's do some crime any sakes. Okay, I have a really quick, like, one sentence one. Okay. An Oak Hill community couple discovered a thief in their home Saturday after a man told a joke and heard a laugh upstairs. (laughs) (laughs) I really wish we knew what the joke was. That sounds amazing. It must have been really good. And also creepy as fuck. I know. (laughs) I know. Okay, I have another one. Oh, that was it? (laughs) Yeah, that was it. It was a one-liner. The the ones I found were really short because we had, like, really long ones, so... Okay, so this one says, snorting bath salts put one Ohio crook in holiday spirit, police say. (laughs) Cops in Vidalia, north of Dayton, say Terry Trent, 44, was high on the designer drug when he broke into a family's home and put up Christmas decorations and then plopped down on the couch to watch television. (laughs) Cute. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, okay, I have one. This one is from a website called WTFFlorida.com. Hmm. Uh, two Florida men were arrested after a home was burglarized. Putnam County Sheriff's deputies say they found the Melrose home and storage areas ransacked on Thursday. As deputies were on scene investigating, 28-year-old Justin Harris of Melrose approached the property from a wooded area. Harris matched the description of one of two men reported by the caller. Deputies found a key to a BMW that was in the garage of the burglarized home. Deputy Gentry and K-9 Halo worked to find 36-year-old Justin Buchler of Keystone Heights. This, uh, Justin tried to bury himself in a gopher tortoise nesting area. What? <laughs> when deputies approached him, Birchler... Birchler was throwing dirt on himself from the gopher tortoise nest in an attempt to conceal himself. <laughs> in Florida, the gopher tortoise tortoise <laughs> the gopher tortoise is declared <laughs> gopher tortoise <laughs> uh, is declared threatened and it is illegal to kill, harass, or destroy gopher tortoises, their eggs, or burrows. The pair of oh. Justin's <laughs> the pair of the pair of Justin's stole reportedly snap-on tools, a 2001 motorcycle bike, jewelry, and professional RC cars, totally more than $30,000. Fuck. Deputies found a firearm, hydrocodone, oxycodone, and meth in the white Ford truck used by the suspects. Both Justins were arrested. Harris was charged with possession of a weapon by a convicted felon, two counts of burglary, two counts of burglary and damaging property. He was taken to Putnam County Jail and held on a $33,000 bond. Buchler was charged with possession of a weapon by a convicted felon, methamphetamine possession, two two counts of larceny, two counts of drug possession, and two counts of endangering a threatened species. He is held on a $36,000 bond. Yikes. (laughs) 
Oh no, not the tur turtles. The turds. <laughs> the turtles. <laughs> Well, I'm glad they're taking those turtles habitats very seriously. Yeah. It's important. Prairie dogging. We gotta protect our prairie our dog and turtles. Nature. <laughs> 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 okay. Wow. That was quite the episode. Yeah. Okay. So thanks for listening again this week. And thanks for tuning in. If you've if you got have any, any crime any oh. stakes. Oh, were you gonna do it too? No, I was going to say, I was going to say, if you had any turtises on yourself (laughs) and you need to get clean, try some Humble Bee Herbal soap. Wash those turtises right off your skin. HumbleBeeHerbal.com. If you have any turtis stories from your, you know, crimey local turtis town, (laughs) what am I trying to say here? If you have any crimey stories, if you have any stories to crimey podcast at gmail.com let us know what's up rate review subscribe let us know what you think send us anything at crime and crime podcast at gmail.com yeah and we will speak at you next week that's exactly what's gonna happen all right so stay safe out there goodbye watch out for turtises yeah (laughs) bye